VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So welcome to the first day of summer. Apparently, it's going to be a pretty nice day around the entirety of the province. Temperatures in the mid to high teens and some 20s thereabouts. So maybe somewhere in the mid to high teens in the city of St. John's for the first day of summer. And, of course, the last full day of school. There's always going to be some concerns with now that assessment's been done. We've had a conversation with uh, Trent Langdon yesterday about how we assess the progress of students in the K-12 system. Still lots of questions to be asked there, whether it be about learning loss or adjusting curriculum or preparation to move on. But the last stretch of school, leading into all of the holidays, including the summer holidays, not so sure a whole lot of learning is going on, but the last full day of school, there you go. Minor sports, I saw them playing some minor baseball down at Conway Glen in the last few days. Of course, minor soccer, minor baseball, all the minor softball, whatever else is going on. I have to admit, now that my boys have gone through minor and amateur sport, I really miss going to watch them play. You know, for some parents, it does become quite the task and the chore, especially if you have more than one child and they're involved in multiple activities, including sports. It does become like a second job. But now that it's behind me, I really absolutely do miss it. I suppose we'll have to go watch my nephews play as much as I can over the summer. Why not? They're all soccer players. And on the soccer front, it was on this date in 1970 at the FIFA World Cup final in uh, Azteca, Mexico, Brazil, and Pele became the first team and player to win the World Cup three times. They beat Italy that day. The attendance that uh, for that final, 107,412 people watching Brazil and Pele. And, of course, Pele passed at the age of, I think he was 82, last December. So there you go. All right, so the eyes of the world, as we all know, are on the extensive and panicked and hurried search for the Titan. The submersible that's gone down was intending to go down for a view of the Titanic, the wreck of so a couple of interesting questions. You know, submersible is exactly what it is, and there's some questions about what makes a submersible and not a submarine. It's pretty fundamental stuff at the end of the day. So basically, the submersibles don't have typically large propulsion systems. They don't have ballast systems as a general rule. They also have limited power reserves, submarines versus submersibles. The submersible will have viewpoints for external cameras to view the outside space. Of course, that would be the way they would approach the Titanic. Now. So, apparently a glimmer of hope. Yesterday, a P-3 Poseidon aircraft belonging to the Canadian military did detect in 30-minute intervals some sound. We now know that that sound comes in the form of banging at very determined intervals, so that's giving people some hope. And let's, fingers crossed, that all five will be rescued. Time is obviously of the essence. The stories that are now coming out as the world focuses, focuses in on this lost submersible and the company Oceangate. So we spoke yesterday about the fact that there was an American news program, did a feature on the company and the founder, the owner, and they were really not that attentive, and it didn't seem like they were paying much attention to safety. And now more stories are coming out on that front. So this is in regard to court documents back to a 2018 case. David Lockridge was a submersible pilot. He was also the director of marine operations at the time for Oceangate, responsible for the safety of all crew and clients. He voiced some very serious concerns about the safety. 
of this particular submersible. So they did the test on a one-third scale model. So the concerns that Mr. Lockridge brought forward is that they were only testing at some 1,300 meters versus the almost 4,000 meters to get down to the wreck of the Titanic. And they say, or he says, pardon me, the constant pressure cycling weakened the existing flaws resulting in large tears of the carbon. So non-destructive testing, critical to detect such potentially existing flaws. So apparently there's some concerns with the forward view portal and with the consistent up and down changing in pressure cycles this fella, who's responsible for the safety of all the crew, says it did indeed pose a distinct and inherent safety flaw. And so when you know things like this, and when the vessel has been down who knows however many times, then he was predicting that this would be exactly the case. There's also some thought and talk going around about the 96 hours worth of oxygen. So they can be down there for as long as that. Even if they make it to the surface, unless it's detected via aerial search, they can't even get out. The hatch is secured by some 17 bolts, so they still need someone physically to get to them before they run out of oxygen. The issue with the 96 hours, so says, says this gentleman, Mr. Lockridge, is that it was never actually tested in real-life conditions. So they can say they have that much oxygen on board, but Mr. Lockridge says, well, we've never really tested it, so we don't really know. Now, the banging does come across as a very hopeful sign, and yes, the world is absolutely watching. And I'm, I mean, I think it's drawn the attention of mo most people here in the province. Every time the uh, wreck of the Titanic is mentioned, of course, it brings upon all sorts of conversation about the unsinkable vessel that was the Titanic and people coming to this province for opportunities to learn more about it, potentially get down to see the wreckage. But this is, time is obviously and clearly of the essence. They're scheduled to run out of, you know, even though they don't really know whether or not they actually have legitimately 96 hours worth of oxygen. So says the gentleman who was responsible for the safety. Anyway, that's some story. All right. In the world of travel, and this one is really something else. So there's two distinctive school of thoughts about how important it is to deal with the cost of getting in and out of the province and air access via direct flights. Okay. So things are only going to get worse, right? So when WestJet has consolidated both Sunwing and Swoop, there are two discount airlines, Fewer options means higher prices, very likely. So says industry analysts. Now, WestJet is quick to say, no, 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 no. It's going to be just fine. Easy for them to say, but reality will be absolutely a different matter. So the conversation goes beyond what the competition looks like. But now that we've heard from Dennis Hogan uh, at the St. John's International Airport, he's talking about the possibility to extend air travel and air access routes, direct flights. Some people think it's a complete and utter waste of time and money. In the most recent provincial budget, there was some $1.5 million set aside for air access concerns. Mr. Hogan says that won't be near enough. Talking about guaranteeing revenue, guaranteeing revenue for airlines to set up shop with direct flights in and out of St. John's. Whether it be transatlantic flights somewhere into Europe or New York or Newark, New Jersey. He's also talking about a direct flight to Ottawa. The reality is the landscape of the airline industry has changed dramatically. We are in competition, just like we are on things like uh, trying to recruit healthcare professionals. Province versus province are absolutely doing what they can to secure routes in and out of their major airports. It doesn't make it the right thing or the smartest thing or the most required thing and the spend of our tax dollar money. But what do you think? So if it's Saskatchewan and in Nova Scotia and other provinces, whether it be reducing the cost for the airline to service the airport, landing fees and otherwise, or some guaranteed revenue based on forecasted to passenger load, that's what's happening. I know some people scoff at it immediately and say, my goodness, whether it be in healthcare or education or anything else under the sun, 
a better and wiser spend of our money. I wonder how you factor in, not only for people living and working here to get in and out of here, but for others to want to choose this place, whether it be to set up shop to do business and or for pleasure travel. It's an interesting conversation, and I totally understand. The needs out there, the laundry list is absolutely long. Where does this factor in? How much money would it actually cost? That's what's lost in the conversation is, give us an idea what we're talking about. Is it the 1.5 million? Is it 2.5? Is it 10? Is it 20? What does it actually take for these routes to be established? I think there's absolutely an economic upside to having better options to get in and out of here and attention to cost. But guaranteed revenue inside the world of corporate welfare really does jump off the page when you read the news stories. Like, really? We're going to guarantee income to airlines who have done us zero favors? Every time some low-cost discount option comes to town, the big two, the WestJets and their kind of the world, they swoop in, they put a bunch of flights on, and they uh, lower their fares. All of a sudden, the low-cost discount option just gets priced out, gets pushed out. So here we are talking about guaranteeing a revenue stream for airlines who have not been our friends. I mean, WestJet has pulled out of here for the most part. Air Canada has reduced their flights. Uh, in Dare Lake, WestJet pulled out in full. So it's an interesting conversation, but I do see the upside. But my God, the world of corporate welfare is not going anywhere. You can talk about it in the form of tax breaks or tax subsidies, and they're two different things, obviously. So we see that right across the gamut, whether it be in the Volkswagen uh, electric vehicle battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario, some possibility of $13 billion in tax subsidies if they hit certain production thresholds. But it's not going to change. And here we are. Province versus province. There's always going to be regional concerns and regional differences in the vast uh, ge geographical footprint that is Canada. But we have got to find ourselves a better way to try to do business as a confederation. We really have a very distinct set of bizarre rules in place, whether it be internal trade or interprovincial trade, which we spoke about with the CFIB just a couple of days ago. I think it was this week. Maybe it was last week. So anyway, the issue of travel, we can take it on if you're interested at all or whatever you're interested in. Okay, yesterday unveiled at the Dr. H. Bliss Murphy Center was a $5 million new chemotherapy unit. Good news. The old unit was about 30 years old. They've increased capacity from 18 patients to 32 patients in a more modern setting with more privacy afforded to the patients who obviously could be quite ill. The big question would be, and once again, not broached in the news stories that I read about it, is we already knew that they had closed one chemo unit because they simply didn't have the healthcare professionals, radiation therapists, I believe is the discipline, to keep it open. So yes, new modern uh, surroundings, more privacy, modernized equipment, all great. Moving from 18 to 32 patients, excellent. We know the prevalence of cancer in the province, but it really doesn't speak to the fact that do we have people to even staff it up? So remember on the West Coast when they were talking about what would be inside and the offerings in the new Cornerbrook Hospital and all the surrounding conversation regarding radiology and what have you, is the number one concern that was put forward is not that we couldn't afford to buy the equipment, is whether or not we were going to be able to have the trained professionals to operate the equipment. And I think the same question needs to be asked here. So I think it's great. New $5 million chemotherapy unit needed. The old unit was antiquated, outdated. But does it mean we're actually going to be able to serve the 32 patients, which is the capacity in the new unit? Good, but not so sure. Anyway, how are we doing on the telephone there, David? A couple of quick ones. I want to go back to the well. got an email from a lady who was uh, in a family where they are, have been trying for quite a long time to have a baby. 
and consequently, they've been traveling for in vitro fertilization services. And this family has been going to Calgary in the most recent past. The province is going to have another go around at trying to improve and to review fertility services here in the province. We all know that they've offered some $5,000 per cycle for up to three cycles to travel. For some, that would cover some costs, but for some families, that's simply not the option. 121 families have availed of it at least one time. It's cost the province about $800,000. You know, so when we talk about population growth, imagine if 121 families were able to add to their family without having to travel. Isn't that a good thing? So the province kind of got it wrong the first go around that the RFP, they actually admitted they had to reword it and extend it. The bids close, I think, early July. Consequently, we'll have more information shortly thereafter. But I think that's a big topic that this lady would like to hear more discussion. She's unable to call or doesn't want to call, but she hopes that you will to talk about it. Uh, a couple of quickies before we get to the break. So there was an ongoing legal challenge to the approval for the Beta Nord project. So the Sierra Club of Canada and another couple of entities, they were saying that Minister Gibo did not consider downstream emissions when approving the project. The judge says that that was unnecessary given the parameters surrounding the uh, green light or the environmental assessment be released. Downstream emissions are absolutely part of it. Of course, there's a life cycle to oil. And he doesn't say that it was right to do it. He said it was reasonable for the government to have made this particular decision. The Sierra Club doesn't sound like they're going to let this go. And then inside that envelope, you know, we talk about the potential once again for a 10% equity stake. There's a report out there from Canada's energy regulator talking about what they believe will be peak oil in this country. They say it's 2026. I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. And it's up to the global economy and global thirst for fossil fuels to determine when peak oil is. It's fine for our energy regulator to say that for oil it's 26 and for natural gas it's 29. But those stories are out there. And last one in Ottawa, or, um, I guess two. Still don't know exactly what the circumstances are surrounding a uh, Chinook helicopter that crashed into the Ottawa River. Two people have indeed been brought to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries, but two are lost. Or have, pardon me, they're still searching for the other two crew members. So yet another sad story that we don't really know where this ends. They were members of the 450 Tactical Helicopter Squadron, and they crashed into the Ottawa River. And so there's no real information coming from Minister Anand on that one. But speaking of federal ministers... The thoughts are that there's going to be a federal cabinet shakeup over the summer, maybe as early as next month. If it's going to be, if it's going to happen this summer, it's probably going to have to have to happen in July, before their next convention in August. So you need your ministers to be on top of their new portfolios. If when there's changes, they say there's four or five that are absolutely not going anywhere. But a lot of people will focus in on Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino. He has had a very tough run of it, whether it be his role in the gun control bill, which is Bill C21. Then all the concerns regarding Chinese interference in the 19 and 21 elections, the issues surrounding the transfer of Paul Bernardo from Millhaven Maximum Security Prison to a medium security prison, not that he necessarily has any real authority to dictate how correction services uh, handles in the incarcerated, but he's absolutely out. I mean, I don't know if he gets another portfolio, but Mendocino has been a problem for sure. And his tattered role as the public safety minister, I would imagine, is in question. So federal cabinet shakeup. And we can talk about the mini cabinet shakeup right here in this province. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to begin this morning speak with Wade Smith. He's the owner of Smith's Ambulance Services out in Whitburn. Remember, it's not that long ago that his contract was torn up by the provincial government. Court challenge on the heels of it. We'll get an update from Mr. Smith right after this. And then we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the owner of Smith's Ambulance Services. That's Wade Smith. Good morning, Wade. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Uh, no, I, um, I called, uh, I was talking to Dave now yesterday, and, well, we finally got government in Eastern Health to submit their uh, defense list a few weeks ago, and uh, now it's all gone into court. But I think the main reason why I wanted to tell you and your listeners and the people around the area, um, since March, what we've seen here is a decline in the ambulance coverage and the level of training. We've got we're down to two ambulances um, instead of four. Now, what we're seeing right now, since May, uh, apparently Eastern Health has uh, renovated a building, uh, the food services building, by the Fresh Martin Dildo, and uh, and renting it at a cost of eleven thousand dollars a month for uh, public funds. Uh, there's sick one ambulance down there. you got one ambulance in Whippin right now. And uh, we're getting calls from people who can't get the chemo appointments. They don't know how to get a hold of an ambulance. They're not getting any satisfaction. And this just keeps going on and on and on. And the minister talks about public safety and, and loss of confidence. Well, I've lost complete confidence here. And a couple of other things that we've seen. Um, a few weekends ago, we've seen one ambulance here, uh, type 2 four-wheel drive parked in at Whitburn and New Hook Health Center, two EMRs, no paramedics on it, no Eastern Health unit around. And it's further complicated. Uh, June the 12th, there was an emergency call here in Whitburn. Uh, I know because I know I know the family. There was an emergency call went out on June the 12th uh, in the evening. Uh, there was an ambulance parked at New Hook Health Center. The ambulance responded from Briggs. 35 minutes away. That ambulance didn't move. And then we've seen another incident here on Father's Day where the SUV drove through Tim Hortons in Whitburn. They waited 35 minutes for an ambulance. The ambulance parked at New Hook, and it was an ambulance responded from Brigus and Hearts Delight. So this is the kind of coverage that the people are getting here, and it's, and it's not acceptable. It doesn't sound it. And add to it, if I remember correctly, it was either in early March or sometime in February, the dispatch unit actually forgot to dispatch an ambulance, and I think that one was uh, supposed to be New Harbor. Yes, it was. It was in February. Uh, there was an emergency call in New Harbor. Uh, the family went down waiting for us on the side of the road, and uh, they said, we, well, we must have got busy or there was another emergency call or something. They didn't realize what was going on, so they waited and waited waited to call back the dispatch, and the dispatch said they didn't know where the ambulance was to. They can't contact them, which was all false, because they do know where we're to, and they can contact us. And anyway, uh, two hours later, they dispatch, oh, we forgot to send an ambulance. So this is what we're dealing with. A couple of things, Wade. So for starters, do you happen to know, I mean, we've been talking about the fact that paramedics are indeed leaving this province for a variety of reasons. Do you know where all your former paramedics are? Some of them didn't go back into the industry. They're gone other places. Uh, others were hired on by um, other companies. And they are currently working. Uh, and there's one group in Fairland, and there's a couple down in, in Brigus right now. Uh, they are working. But uh, I'm going to bring up another complication now that they found. That recognition bonus, that uh, service recognition payment that the minister said he was going to give to everybody, well, my staff didn't get that. Smith's Ambulance staff didn't get it. Five of them were refused. We, had, we all had to fill in applications um, that we, we were working on March the 1st, that we were employed by an ambulance company on March the 1st, that we were, were um, what was the other ones we had to have, 
Well, we had to have our, our, our EMR or paramedic certificate, and it had to be updated. So anyway, all that was sent in, and uh, I was refused it. And after 30 years in this industry, I didn't, I didn't get recognized. My lead hand over 25 years, he didn't get recognized. And five other staff members belonged to me that had Smith's ambulance. We had to, had to send in a, the last copy of their pay stub. But we, we, what we'd done, we copied it and uh, deducted, of course, the uh, personal information, and we sent that in. And they were all turned down. Because any rationale offered or reason? No, they would not. Uh, we went, uh, it was, this was all given out to Grant Thornton to, uh, by the uh, Department of Health to give out. And uh, Grant Thornton then went through the process, and apparently it was up to Wayne Young, who was the manager of ambulance services, or Julian Kennedy, the director, to uh, finalize it. And um, I know my staff have been calling them. I'm after sending them emails. I'm after getting in contact with the President Association. Nobody's getting back to us. Nobody's telling us why we couldn't get it. I mean, I've got people 30, 25, 30 years uh, in EMS and just went through the, uh, one of the worst situations in a two-year pandemic that we've ever seen, uh, putting their lives at risk, and, and, and $1,900, we're not worth $1,900? Something else. I mean, there's another group of support workers out there in healthcare that did not get some of the bonus money that was afforded to most people in the healthcare system. So, Wade, given what's gone on here and given the amount of time you've spent in the ambulance service business, what actually are you looking for in court? Are you looking for compensation? Are you looking to have your contract restored? Are you interested in going back to work in this field in Whitburn? Or what are you looking for? Well, we're looking. We're we're looking for. Uh I, I guess what, the, uh, what we're talking about with our lawyer is that um, we're, we, uh, we're going after them for wrongful termination of, of our contract. And what that means at the end of the day, I suppose, and what the judge uh, puts out there. But from what we're seeing here, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing here that would have terminated our, our, our contract um, at any length. And the fact that health, like, we had to go through this process, like, uh, with non-compliance, but what what we've learned through ATIPS and everything else is that government was involved with this right from day one. So even though we were just three parties involved, and all three parties are supposed to upheld that agreement, that kind of feels like we were fighting two part, two parties all at once because the government and Eastern Health were siding with one another against us, and at the end of the day, didn't provide any proof, uh, didn't come to us for any reason whatsoever. Uh, we had a ministerial review. That was supposed to be completed, that the minister said, no, we're not going to complete it anymore. But now we found out that it has been completed, and we still haven't got the results. So I guess we're, we're, go, we're going back. We're, we're, we're looking to see what, what, we, what, uh, what can happen. And the fact that we're going with this one entity, apparently, for an ambulance service, uh, we don't know what's going to come out of that. So even if we did go back, you know, um, What's, what's left for us? 180 days, we're gone again. Like, we really don't know. And with this government and with this minister, um, I, we don't know. I mean, we all got our jobs gone. I mean, I got no job. I, I can go to work. But uh, this is tying up a lot of my time and a lot of the people that we had. Uh, there was jobs put out here in Whitburn. Uh, Eastern Health wanted four people. Now, four people can't run an ambulance out here. And none of my, uh, none of my paramedics got to look in. And on top of that, you've got documents that contradict what government alleges was reasons for your contract to be terminated, which is an unbelievable part of the story. Well, so, we do, Patty, and yeah. it, the, the list goes on and on and on. And the one particular one which, re, which really um, got me mind-boggled is the fact that 
on February the 4th, um, when they say we, we never we refuse to respond to a call, uh, we had conditions against us, uh, power loss, storm, widow conditions. Our employees refused to work, which they have ever rate under OH&S. So this has been verified by OH&S. The lawyers in OH&S verified it. We, do, we can refuse. I've even had talked to different people who work with the, with the RCMP and other police services. They have a right to refuse on safe work. And uh, all of a sudden we got uh, the manager of prime medicine, Michelle Breen, come back and say, no, you can't. You can't, you can't refuse. You've got to go. Yeah, it's 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 just it's just so incredible, Patty. I just can't believe that we've got this mindset. I mean, how are we supposed to change? How are we supposed to have a conscious, safety-oriented group of workers in this province? How are we supposed to get rid of harassment? How are we supposed to get rid of treating everybody the same when we got officials in government who are doing this to the people of the province and inside government itself? So how are we supposed to change that mindset? It's a fair question. Uh, I appreciate the uh, update and the information this morning about the coverage now that your contract has gone by the wayside. Any time frame for legal resolution here? Um, no, it's uh, all under what to call, I guess, the discovery phase right now and getting the documents sent in the Supreme Court. So what the hell long that takes, Patty, I guess I, I don't really know. The lawyers, are, uh, our lawyers working on it, and uh, we're going back now looking for some ATIP information. Uh, apparently, there's there's uh, there's tapes that's missing. Um, where I called in on February to tell them that we were having problems, they said that and I didn't call. I have the phone records to say I did call. So now we're going. Where the privacy commissioner has sided with Eastern Health. So now we're taking that the next step. So yeah. what the time frame would be, I I have no idea. I guess it depends on the court docket. But we're hoping to get get this through as as quick as possible. Uh, to try to get some resolution um, to see where's, what's going to happen, whether we take our contract back or where, um, whether there's a new new company at the end of the day by the time that happens. I guess that will depend on whether or not that contract is even viable anymore. Yeah, and given the unknown about how, when, if there's going to be the consolidation of those 60 different contracts all under the uh, department itself really does make the future uh, questionable, I would imagine, is one word. I'd say bleak, Patty, because in okay. every other province, if you look at the way that they do different things, government doesn't handle it. As like the College of Surgeons and Physicians, and like the College of Nurses and, and, and Nurse Practitioners, they licensed and look after um, all the divisions within within that um, within that entity. And this is the way it needs to be here. This needs to be outside of government. There needs to be a a, 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 a kind of like a committee that's set up. They do all the registration. They do all everything when it, when it comes down to animal services. And that's the way it should be. It should be out of government's hands all, all, all together. And what scares me the most is that who's going to be in charge of operating this animal service? Is it going to be somebody who out of the RHA? Because what we're seeing in the RHA is not very good. And that means that we're going to have a worse animal service in this province than we've ever had. And as far as I'm concerned, I think we're gone back 30, 40 years. And it might be me and it might be you and it might be anyone listening to the program that will need one of these first responders and their ambulance to come to our aid in an emergency situation. We should also be talking about how we use ambulances for non-emergency transport and things like that, which is further complicated, wait times and red alerts and all the rest of it. Uh, Wayne, I appreciate the time this morning and the update. Stay in touch. Thank you, Patty, for your time. My pleasure. Take good care. Right, bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. I mean, there's another contract out there that government, you know, I use the phrase tore up, but I mean, they, they, they revoked, and that's in the school bus system. 
Remember Glad News. So they say they weren't given any real legitimate reasons as to why their contract was torn up. And remember, they did indeed were involved with a tragic incident. But while we were told they were providing a, a safe busing system for some, I think it was upwards of 30 schools, as soon as the contract was revoked, then the other busing outfits, they were using Gladney's drivers and Gladney's buses to pick up the slack. So that contract is also being considered in, in uh, a legal challenge. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Sylvia about a flag-raising amount, Pearl, and then we're going to be talking to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Sylvia Murphy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay this morning. Thank you. How about you? Ah, great. National Indigenous Day. That it is. That it is. Happy National Indigenous Day to you, Sylvia. I know we talk about this subject when you call. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Well, this morning I just wanted to call in and just let the people in the surrounding metro area know that we'll be raising the uh, Mi'kmaq Ground Council flag at 11 a.m. in St. David's Park. St. David's Park in Mount Pearl. Yes. So, in addition to the flag raising, what else is going to be going on? Well, we're going to sing a few songs and we're going to smudge and say a few prayers. That is the protocol, and protocol has been followed. I've made sure that we were given approval to be able to do this. So, everything is covered. (laughs) So, anyone that wants to uh, drop by sing a song with us while we raise the flag would be wonderful on top of that sylvia i've i've read this story and i'm still trying to get a full and better understanding of what happened yesterday in supreme court regarding the there was a bunch of challenges to the halipu first nation enrollment process the judge presiding i think was judge marshall did not rescind the 2013 supplement agreement but offered other so-called remedies to it can you help me understand exactly what was determined in the court yesterday well, from what uh, our lawyer, uh, Keith, talked about was that the five, when this was started, it was, um, I think, I don't know how to French, so, and all, but from what, reading the papers, it was only five of the litigants um, that actually this would pertain to, but I don't know. I see, I'm happy with it. Okay. To me, it's a, it's a win. You know, I mean, FNI, who is FNI, really? Um, a president and a few counselors, you know, who used to be chiefs back then, but then when they had the elections with Alibu, other people came in as counselors, and I don't think you see any chiefs, uh, the smaller chiefs, band chiefs, going to uh, the council meetings. I don't know too much about council meetings because they've got me blocked from everything. Okay. They want me to know too much, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to try to figure out the story a little clearer. But the enrollment process has been a mess since the very beginning. They anticipated there would be somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 18,000, 20,000 people who would apply for status. It ended up, I believe, it was like 105,000 people applied. 
In addition to that, there was over 10,000 existing members of the band that were kicked out. So That's me. I'm one of them. Right, I know. Family. That's why I'm bringing it up with you. So this, yeah. generally speaking, always felt like a financial issue. So the government had set aside X amount of money uh, for this process and the numbers of people who would indeed get status, and they were overwhelmed with uh, uh, applications. There was a bizarre checkbox sort of application process where he had brothers and sisters raised in the same community, but now one lives elsewhere in a, non- a so-called non-Indigenous community. One got status, one did not is just really something strange about the entire thing it felt reverse engineered from the get-go well the sad part of it uh, patty to be honest with you is that my grandmother had 17 children one of her children got on she had a family say of nine uh the ones lived here in newfoundland kept their status as six ones the other ones that um lived in ontario wherever across canada they went back to a 6-2, so they didn't actually take these people off that list that went to Ottawa. But in our situation, we had our names taken off, totally taken off, and because I check all the time on it. And the, the sad part about it is that the ones that were away, they went back to a, down to a 6-2, which means their children and grandchildren can't be recognized it's all in the recognition for me i want i'm proud to be a mi'kmaq you know i had lawyers say to me well why don't you claim metis i said why would i claim metis when i'm mi'kmaq you know that that's one of the saddest things i think that's, that's been said to me claim something that i'm not and of course some applicants it was quite dubious their actual genealogy or ingenuity so uh, anyway i'll leave it at that uh sylvia i appreciate the time tell the folks the where the when one more time for the flag raising in mount pearl okay it's this morning at 11 a.m and it's only going to be about a half hour ceremony we're going to raise the mi'kmaq grand council flag with all protocols followed and um we're doing this i've been after this for a lot of years uh, going back, I don't know, in 2000, and now it's going to be raised today. I think maybe our city is one of the first outside of Cornerbrook, that area. Mm-hmm. But uh, I live here, and there's a lot of indigenous. I have a lot of. We are the Newfoundland Change Makers, the group that we are in. And by the way, um, any of your callers want to go down to the Colonial Building? All of the prayer ties, the 10,200 and so uh, prayer ties that were put on, I was asked to take them down. I said, well, I, did, I didn't ask to put them up for permission. So we went down and took them all down. And for the last year, we've, we've worked on a project, which we called the Kite. And it's a Kite best made up. And it's got, we only salvaged about 6,000 of the prayer ties. So we sat down and we put, we have 10,258 prayer ties on the flag. And we also put up the, uh, a banner, the red dress. And it's not because I made it and I had a collaborator, young artist, Justin Squires, who helped me with this. We did the red dress and it is beautiful. 
when we had it installed on Monday, the workers there cried. They actually cried. Well, we cried along with them, you know, because it's very heartbreaking. But to finally let the people know that all their prayers are put in a room down at the Colonial Building, which, by the way, I bartered this. Do you want me to take them down? Either you put up a statue or let us have an installation where we put something up, and that's what we did. And I thank the people from the Colonial Building that's done this for us. And that's a recognition and the gratitude that I have. I'm sorry. I get emotional. <laughs> Today, it's it's just wonderful. And then the court proceedings, I think everything is going to be okay for us. Because the, where they've proved that it was oppression. And uh, the other court case in Toronto for my cousin Jerry Brake, who passed away. And I remember... The uh, the FNI lawyer saying, but no one's died over this. He died, you know, and that's another heartbreaking story. But I think it's all going to be okay, Patty. I appreciate the time this morning, Sylvia. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Nemultus. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, there we go. So flag raising today at St. David Square, Mount Pearl. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, how are you this morning? Doing grand. You? Good. I don't know if I how good I am or not. I'm just wondering if somebody out there can help me. I need some help, desperate help. What's going on? Uh, yesterday morning, about quarter after seven, woodpecker pounding away at my house like nobody's business. Sound like, and there's to a point that it sounds like a jackhammer. Started again this morning, about quarter after five pounding away again like a jackhammer and after phoning a few of the uh, I guess pest control uh, companies they don't look after those kinds of things they just do like your rodent you know earwigs you know kind of a thing sure. they don't they, they, they don't go in to that kind of a thing but I'm here now like I can't have a woodpecker every day pounding into my house because what kind of damage is going to do to my health over a period of time. And I mean, and it's nerve-wracking listen to them every morning, pounding away. I don't want the bird killed. I don't want it poisoned. I just want it, like, Gone. A, a simple fix, something, you know, that he'll just go away and pound in, like, somebody's tree or, you know, go to the woods or something like that. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do, where to turn. Like, you know, just looking for something, a, a simple fix, I guess, something inexpensive or whatever, you know. Yeah, and to, I'm not 100% sure. I don't, I didn't know how common that might be for a woodpecker. And the woodpeckers in this province, I think, are called northern flickers, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Big red triangle, triangle on their back is the giveaway that you're dealing with uh, a northern flicker woodpecker. I would suggest you, well, of course, the government ultimately is going to have to get involved here if, they, if anyone is going to. But I'd get some involved from Memorial University first, I think. So whether you be uh, try to contact uh, Dr. Montevecchi or someone like that who'd be absolutely able to point you in the right direction, have way more knowledge about what to do next versus what I know. Okay, so how would I get in touch with him? I'll get your number. Hold on now. Okay. Because, I mean, I can't have this going on for, like, an indefinite period of time because, I mean, every day he's packing away at my house. I, you know, he's God knows what kind of damage he's doing, and I got that to look at then at the end of the day. 
yeah, it's uh, it's a strange one. Okay, I have a number that you can contact uh, Dr. Montevecchi. He's he might not be the person who does it, but he'll know more about what you should do than I would. So I'd give him okay. a call. His uh, office number is eight six four. Eight six four. Seven six. Seven six. Seven three. Seven three. Okay, I'm just wondering. You know, kind of put the call out. I don't know if anyone out there would have this kind of problem or know how to help me out and can help me out. I mean. You know, I'm willing to pay, you know, whatever for the time, whatever they need to put up, you know, to deter the bird, that kind of a way. I don't know if there's people out there in the construction industry or contracting industry that have come across something like this as well and say, hey, you know, like it's a quick fix. This is what we found. It, it, it worked and, you know, we can do this and, you know, and everybody's gone away happy kind of a thing. Yeah, so but if like, someone calls us and they say, well, yeah. we've dealt with it, I know what to do, we'll absolutely have them call you. Do you want us to share your number with them if someone does call? By all means. Okay, we will do. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. You're, lo- uh, you're welcome. Good luck. Good, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Woodpecker coming after the house? Strange one. And I've never seen one in the city either. I have seen them out in, you know, up Salmon Air, for instance, but not in the city. And I'm not exactly sure where she's calling from, but the prefix looks like it's somewhere around town. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about harvesting icebergs. And then my buddy Andrew Hines. He's got a huge honor and thrill ahead of him as he is one of the torchbearers uh, in Berlin for the 2023 Special Olympics World Summer Games. We'll talk to Andrew as well right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Ruta. You're on the air. Hi. I was phoning about the lady with the woodpecker banging on her house. Right. And we had the same problem, and it almost happens every spring. Somebody told me, and I just looked it up online as well, it's part of the male mating habit. He's trying to attract a female by sending out that hammering call. And the only thing I was able to do, we live in a bungalow, so I would go out on the back deck, sort of the corner of the house where he's at, and just scare him off. But next morning, very often he comes back or he goes to the other side of the house. But eventually, I guess, he finds his girlfriend and away they go. But that's, he's not, he's, I thought at one time he's trying to peck at some insects in my roof or whatever. No, it has nothing to do with rot in the house or anything else. He's just found the best echoing chamber that he can find in the city. And it happens to be her house and my house. Interesting that that is part of a mating ritual. I also heard from uh, a listener that said they had the same thing happening at their home. What they did is they put plastic owls near where the woodpecker was digging in, and it kept the birds away. So I don't know if it was a combination of the plastic owl getting a girlfriend. We're going to pass that along to the caller as well. Okay, then. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So it's part of the mating mating ritual. Okay. But maybe the plastic owls. Well, it worked for this particular listener, so that's a good thing. Now, I said Andrew Hines had a big honor ahead, but it's, of course, behind. I know full well that the torchbearer relay was going to culminate, I believe, on the 17th of June in Berlin. Let's say good morning to Andrew Hines on line number one. Andrew, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome home. Thank you very much. It's great to be home. No doubt it is. So you must be still riding a high because it's a pretty big honor to get to be part of that final leg of the torch relay. I think there was only 10 athletes. The only one from Canada was you. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, there was actually eight athletes across the world who got picked, and I was one of the eight. I was on Team 1. 
it's amazing because you had the opportunity back in 2022 for the World Winter Games in Russia that, of course, were postponed due to the pandemic. So you must have been thrilled when you were given the opportunity to do the exact same thing in Berlin. Yes, I was very thrilled. I was very happy, very excited. I was. Do you know how it worked? That how, do you know how you got picked, or was it simply because you lost your chance in Russia, so they thought you were a great candidate to pick it up in Berlin? Um, no, actually, they had they had to choose. I had to go back and put my resume back in there again, and they choose mine, and uh, yeah. Okay, paint us a picture, Andrew. Take us to Berlin. Tell me what you saw, who you met, and just help us run that torch into the stadium. Just tell us all about it as much as you can. Well, I um, ran with the torch uh, four days in a row. Actually, uh, we ran 10 miles in four days. Um, I, re- I hold the torch 22 times. Um, most of all the athletes that went. Um, the opening ceremonies was amazing. Uh, everything about Berlin Journey was amazing. The culture, the people, it was very nice. You've been a special Olympian, if I remember correctly, somewhere like 25 years, soccer player, floor hockey, so never had a chance to compete on the world stage. So did it feel any different to compete in the world games versus the provincial games or national games or other competitions? Did it bring more pressure or was it just excitement? It brought more like relief and more happy and like, yeah, it wasn't really pressure, it was like, okay, we know what we're going up there to do and we can do it. We've done it before. Nothing changes, you know. Tell us about your relationship with Lynette Wells. Uh, me and Lynette go way back. I knew I know Lynette Wells since I was 11 years old. Um, I ran with her many times on the torch run. And actually, um, the funny part about um, this whole thing is I was supposed to get a replica of the uh, torch, but um, they were so impressed and so proud. And what I did uh, yesterday morning when I um, got up, I, had, I did an interview with uh, NTV News, and Lunette Wells actually presented me with a real torch, like the torch I actually really hold. It wasn't really the replica of the torch. It was the torch that I actually actually used. That's amazing. How so does she- I have the torch right now in my house. Wow. What a keepsake that will be. So did Lynette tell you how she was able to, to secure the actual torch? No, she didn't tell me nothing. Um, that day we were, we, we were presented with the torch and we were wondering how we were going to get home because we couldn't bring it on a plane. And we were going back and forth how we were going to do it. And she said, Andrew, we need to mail it. So I was like, okay. So I was very shocked and surprised yesterday when I actually got to hold it and actually got to bring it home. Good for you. I'm really thrilled to hear that. So, Andrew, we've talked about the torch run and what that meant to you and how many times you had it in your hands and how, many dis- how, lo- how long you ran each day for four days. Tell us about the competition. The uh, competition um, of, of it was uh, cool. You know, the athletes are very nice you know, everyone everyone that went up there and participated in um Fortune Torch one, it was great. They they it was very organized. It was very good and organized and you know, it's a trip for a lifetime like you said and 
There's so many memories, so many things. And of course, first time at the World Games, 170 countries represented, seven or 8,000 athletes, and then their supporters, their family, their coaches and whatnot. Did you meet anyone in particular that you're going to stay in touch with or uh, any cool stories you want to relay from your time in Berlin? I want to stay in touch with all the people that I ran with. And yeah, it was very nice. The weather was hot up there and the culture was nice. It was a fun, fun, fun time for me. I'm, I'm sure it was. And one of the quotes from the story that I read some while back was, Andrew says, I love my province, I love my country as well, and I can't wait to represent Canada and Newfoundland. I'm sure everyone surrounding you and you yourself must be really proud, and so you should be, Andrew. Anything else you want to tell us this morning? I know. I just want to say uh, thank you to everyone out there that uh, supported uh, me and Lynette and all the people in Newfoundland and across Canada. Thank you so much. We're behind you 100%, buddy. Thanks for making time for the show, and once again, welcome home. Thank you again, Patty. Have a great day. Very same to you, Andrew. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Andrew Hines, torchbearer. How cool is that? Eight athletes worldwide. Andrew, one of them, the only athlete from the country, 25 years as a Special Olympian, finally gets a chance to bring his talent and his passion and his excitement to the world stage. Thrilling story. Great stuff. Let's go to line number three. Sue, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent, thank you. How about you? Uh, good, thank you. Um, there was a missus that called in about the woodpecker. Yep. So I Google it, and it says uh, homeowners have reported some success deterring woodpeckers with uh, wind socks, pinwheels, aluminum balloons. Uh, that's the shiny ones. And the bright mylar balloons are especially effective. Strips of aluminum foil or reflective tape. All helpful suggestions, and I'm going to make sure that the caller earlier gets all of these, and maybe she can find out a way for to interrupt the mating ritual to take the hammering to another piece of wood uh, so that this particular woodpecker can find his mate for the season. But I appreciate you Googling it up. So you want to run through the remedies one more time? Okay. Um Wait, I gotta go back because I was reading something else. <laughs> okay. Okay, sorry. It's wind socks. Yeah. Pinwheels. Aluminum balloons. Okay. And bright mylar, M Y L A R. Right. Balloons are especially effective. And strips of aluminum foil are reflective tape. All very helpful. Maybe just as simple as a quick shot over to the dollar store, you might be able to find that woodpecker hammering somewhere else. I appreciate the Google and the time, Sue. Thanks. Okay, you're welcome. And hopefully she'll have good luck with it. Hope so. Okay, you have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. And, of course, the other listener said that the plastic owl was an effective remedy for the battering of that northern flicker. Just got a text that this person, a good friend of mine and a listener, says this is his... The bane of his existence is the woodpecker that haunts his particular property. Anyway, that's pretty good stuff. Let's take a break. When we come back, Craig, stay right there to talk about harvesting icebergs. Then we're going to talk about air access and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's uh, Craig Budjo from out in Triton. 
just calling you today to help me. My son, uh, 15-year-old Grayson Budjo, got a little uh, business on the go. He's called Grayson's Bergy Bits. And we're making a trek out to the West Coast today, and we got a 1,000 pounds of ice on board. What email address did you send that information? Because I remember reading it, but I don't recall. Like, I just looked up your name, but it doesn't come up with the email. Who sent it to well, me? Um, the email was sent, uh, I'm not sure who sent the email in, but I did, uh, uh advertise or, or post on the Newfoundland Iceberg Report. Okay. Through Diane Davies. And I've got a, a outcry of people that want iceberg ice. And we did a trek to St. John's last week you now, and I did a, a little thing with CBC Radio there. Cool. So how do you go about getting the iceberg ice? Because we know the dangers of getting too close to an iceberg. So how does it work? So what we do, we don't actually harvest the iceberg from the the bergy bits uh, from the actual iceberg itself. We collect the ice that's after falling away from the main bergs. I see. And we do it in a safe, humane manner, right? So it's uh, we were like I said, we got a 16 foot boat with a little engine on there, and uh, yeah, like we've been fortunate this year. Our area in the Green Bay South area, we're, we're we got a lot of icebergs this year. And we had a lot in close proximity to our doorstep. So it was a great opportunity for my young fellow to make a few spending dollars, right? How much are you selling the ice for? So we got a, we do it up in 12-pound bags, and uh, we, we sell those bags for $10. And uh, right now we're after selling around 2,500 pounds of ice in total. Wow, that's pretty cool. How did Grayson get involved in uh, harvesting bergy bits and putting a business together? Well, I just put... I, I planted a seed with him, and uh, he's a pretty aggressive outdoor guy. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I explained to him with a little bit of hard work and effort. Uh, our cost is very minimal, of course, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, hard work pays off, and uh, I'm sure there's a market, and there's people who'd like to have it for their uh, cooling effect in, in their drink of choice. And, uh, you know, it, it lasts so long in, in your beverage that uh, it doesn't dilute what you're actually drinking. So it, it, it's a lot of benefits to the iceberg ice. I think most people around here would have had an experience of having iceberg ice in their drink of choice, uh, alcoholic or otherwise. So good on you. So give us the details one more time where you're heading today and how much ice you got on board. So today we're going to be at the Walmart parking lot at 3 p.m. in Cornerbrook. Cool. Uh, we're going to be we're heading from Triton Air right now, actually, and uh, we're going to be there. Uh, my number seven zero nine two six three sixty six eight zero seven. If anyone wants to reach out or or let me know if you need ice, we're uh, like I said, we're traveling to the West Coast. We're doing a twelve day salmon fishing trip down. We're being a tourist at home. <laughs> so we figure we'd bring a little bit of ice for our, our little journey as well. It sounds great. Uh, safe travels and good luck on the river and good luck in the Walmart parking lot selling your ice. Good on, Grayson. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Craig. All the best. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. A little bit of entre entrepreneurial spirit with something that's right out in front of you, out by the door. All right, let's go to line number five and say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port-a-Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, before I get started, I just want to send my thoughts and prayers, of course, to those people in the uh, submarine off the coast there by the Titanic and uh, some positive news coming there on your radio station about uh, the fact they've heard these things. But all of us, of course, are hoping for a successful recovery operation of course we all are no question there's a lot of bleak thoughts going around out there but it's not over yet the time crunch here is very very real and i don't know if you've read any of the stories about the safety track record of that company and that particular vessel which gives people certainly heightened concern
concern, but fingers crossed that this comes out to a successful resolution. It's a scary story, man. I can't imagine being trapped in that little thing for all this time. Yeah. And the world is watching, that's yep. for sure. Yep. Patty, I wanted to talk to you today about access and their access, and more importantly, the tourism industry itself. A lot of times we talk about uh, mega projects in our province. I would argue that the tourism industry is a sustainable mega project. But, you know, whether it's from the Torngat Mountains to, to Mistaken Point, there are attractions and activities that people want to come to Newfoundland and Labrador to avail of. And we need to find a way to make that easier. When I look at the stats around the tourism industry, that's why I use the word uh, mega project. When you think about 2,400 tourism-related businesses in Newfoundland and Labrador, over 20,000 tourism-related jobs, $1.2 billion industry. And what they do, and then the other step, which was quite interesting, was the fact that international travelers spend three times as much as domestic travelers. So when you start thinking about all of those stats, how do we, how do we take this industry and move it from $1 billion to $2 billion? And one of those key pieces to that, of course, is access. And air access is a critical part of that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I do think we also have to incorporate conversations about changing that cost recovery model via Marine Atlantic. But air access will obviously be the dominant concern here. Uh, but, I mean, it's not just tourism, right? It's business. It's being right. pleasure travel for people who actually live in this province. So would you be in favor of what they're talking about at the St. John's International Airport Authority? Mr. Hogan is saying that, you know, with the way other provinces are approaching this, they're talking about things like guaranteeing revenue for the airlines, which, of course, fair enough, but corporate welfare seems like a tricky road to go down, considering the fact that they might come here, get their guaranteed revenue, make their monies, and when they have a better offer elsewhere, they're gone again. So I think there's a big risk associated with that. There, there is a challenge. We know now that airline industry is regrouping and reestablishing after COVID. So now they're starting to look at those routes, where they're going to plan their routes. So now is the time for us to be having those type of conversations as a province with the airline industry, whether it's domestic or international. And what that looks like at the end of the day, it may not come down to the province having to spend a lot of money, but what it comes down to is making sure that we find a way to keep and encourage those airline in industries to come here. But you're right. I, mean, I think in Manitoba example, I don't think the Manitoba government, even though they offered guarantees, are really spending a whole lot of money on that guarantee. We have seen our, our routes in the past when we did have those international routes to Europe, for example, that they were filled. We always talked about how the planes were filled. So it comes down to what are the measures that are keeping the airline industry from reestablishing itself in Newfoundland and Labrador, in reestablishing those access routes. So if you're, if you're not sitting down and having those conversations, then you have no way of understanding. And right now it's a critical period because, as I said, they're reestablishing those, those routes. And we need to be having those discussions right now with those airlines, whether, like I said, domestic or international. Because at the same time, I think for government, we have to start, stop thinking about a lot of things as cost and start thinking about as investment. So what does that investment look like? How would we get it done? What kind of guarantees do we have as a province? Because it's not just about guaranteeing an airline. It's about guaranteeing the province and the people of the province, because that's the critical piece to this. So those are the things that need to be happening. Those are discussions that need to be happening, in my opinion. I don't know how comprehensive the evaluation would be to 
justify uh, a subsidy, what the return on said subsidy would be, because it's easy enough to use some of the tourism numbers, because we have those, and we understand the amount of money a visitor spends versus someone who's on a staycation, but how do you factor in the rest of it? Like, what does it mean for the possibility to expand the workforce of a uh, an Equinor, or what does it mean for even myself as an individual traveler? I don't know how you incorporate all that, but passenger load comes in many different forms. People travel for different reasons. And that's exactly right, and that's why I think you know government has a role to play here because as we're talking about air access today, but you're absolutely right about Marine Atlantic, for example, and how we've allowed that to slip. So now we're paying 65% of the cost. You know, those are those are big discussions that we need to have, and that's not just about people traveling. That's about the cost of our food and everything else that's impacted by those high rates on the uh, on the ferry crossings. So for me, though, it comes down to that negotiation and sitting down and talking about it. Because if you start to talk about the anatomy of a dollar, how do we turn a dollar that government spends into four or five or six dollars in terms of expenditure in our province? We know when we we talk about all the benefits of uh, cruise ships coming to our uh, coast or or conventions and all of that, there's an immediate impact on the economy. And when I think about all of the jobs that can be created, we turn a $1 billion industry into a $2 billion industry. The economic benefit to that of government, of people in our province, is going to be huge. And every time we could establish that and we can create an industry that's not just about, you know, four months, but maybe it's six months, maybe it's eight months and, and grow that. That's where I see government making a wise investment because that's what government should be out there talking to people and saying, what does government need to do to help you grow your business? And it's not about creating mega projects. It's about creating that one or two jobs or three or four jobs. That's that's the whole piece on this. How do we how do we help grow these small businesses all over Newfoundland and Labrador? And what can government do to help? The other piece that I think is interesting now on this whole air access is think about what we're doing in the healthcare side of things. We're recruiting healthcare professionals from all over the world, most in Europe, in India, and other places. Think about all of those who now want are coming to Newfoundland and Labrador. So they, we want them to come here and move here and live here. And then part of that is going to be how easy it is for them to, to go home to visit relatives or how easy is it for relatives to come back to come visit them in Newfoundland and Labrador. So you start to think about putting all those pieces together. You know, if we're truly going to be looking to bring new people into Newfoundland and Labrador, which we need, then, you know, air access plays a role in that too. Yeah, I don't dispute that. You know, the issue about, you know, a tax subsidy or a tax relief uh, based on hitting certain production thresholds is a different thing than giving uh, big corporations in particular a tax break. They're two different things. They feel and sound the same, but they aren't really. The message has got to be something like this. Here's what we're doing, and here's what it will mean for individuals and small business. Because if it's simply focused in on the Air Canada's and the West Jets of the world, people aren't going to be too keen on giving these big players who have not been friends of this province any sort of relief so we've got to figure out a way if this is the pragmatic thing to do about what it actually 
means for smaller businesses because the big guys, corporate welfare, that kind of stuff is not much of an appetite, but the world is changing so quickly. Tax subsidies are seeing provinces competing with each other for the exact same thing, whether it be incentives for healthcare workers or subsidies for airlines or guaranteed revenue. They're doing it elsewhere. It doesn't mean we have to follow the leader or just because they jump in the harbor, we don't jump behind them. But if we don't do something, we're going to see further erosion of service here. And that can't be good for anybody. Tourism, for the business community, for individual pleasure travelers, nobody. It's just going to get less frequent options and more expensive. That's 100% right, because if we're going to grow our, and sustain our health industry and our education system, we need our economy to grow. And tourism industry can be part of that growth, a significant part of it. So let's focus in on minimizing and uh, the benefit or the benefits to the airlines, so to speak, but maximizing the benefits to the people of the province. And what I mean by that is we need to guarantee that this idea of whatever we do with these airlines, that it's the people of the province who are going to get the maximum benefit from government investments. Because it can't be the companies that get the benefit of government investments or the maximum benefit of government investments. It has to be the industries in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I think there are people out there, there are numbers of people identified already by tourism industry, about significant numbers of people who, would, who, would, who have identified that Newfoundland and Labrador would be a destination of choice for them. But how do we make sure that it's affordable and they can get here because there's access available? It's a big one, and I, I mean, this is not to move uh, the focus to the Liberal Party federally, but if the Minister of Rural Economic Development, uh, being a Newfoundland or Labradorian, Goody Hutchings, her portfolio screams trying to advance the cause of reducing that cost recovery model at uh, Marine Atlantic. It used to be all the rage for politicians. It kind of went by the wayside. Then it re- got a bit more traction when the fuel surcharge was broached, and now that's been paused till December, thankfully. But, boy, we've got to figure out Marine Atlantic as well. Uh, before I let you go, Tony, so the nomination process is closed. There's going to be three candidates that we knew were in the running for the next PC leadership position. Yourself, Mr. Part, who was first out of the gate, and now Eugene Manning. Why Tony Wakem? Well, Patty, I believe that this province needs better decision-making, and I would put my track record on my leadership skills up against anyone else's because at the end of the day, this is about leadership. I've been a leader all my life. I've lived and worked all over Newfoundland and Labrador. I've lived, I've worked and ran private organizations. I've worked and ran public organizations. I've also ran national organizations, provincial organizations. I have been a leader. I have been at the table. I have been at the board table. I have significant experience in both healthcare and the private sector. So I think those are assets that I bring to the table. The ability to build teams. And that's what I've been doing. I've been really excited. As I've gone around this province, I have got people engaged who have never been engaged in politics before. I have people on my team with lots of experience in politics. I have former MHAs, current MHAs, and I have a group of young people who have come together. And actually, we've sat down on many occasions and had conversations about this province and where we should be going. And when you engage with those people, you get motivated to do even more and to do it better. So that's the type of team that I'm building. People, I have had former liberals come up to me and tell me they voted liberal all their life, but not now. They want to be part of the team. And that's the kind of motivation I get as I go around the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And that's what I'll continue to do and continue to focus on people, not politics.
any talking to Tory Ranks about the fact that this is going to be uh, settled in October, but there's also a school of thought out there that we might even see a provincial election this fall. Any thoughts? Well, you know, I don't think the Liberal government would, uh, traditionally they haven't done it in the past, in the middle of a leadership campaign, the governing party doesn't generally call an election. That would be the exception. Yeah, no, I would consider maybe, for instance, November, so not to break with protocols of the past, but I hear more and more people thinking that there's an election in the offing. Well, I would, uh, if the the Liberal government wants to... uh, bring an election on early to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. We are ready and willing to take the Liberal government on. Appreciate the time this morning, Tony. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony Wakeham, the PC member for Stephenville port port Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the pricing in the pharmacies. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you today? morning. Very well. How about you? Not too bad, sir. Uh, My first time calling in, but I've listened to you for a long time. Um, the reason I'm calling in this morning, I guess it's just bringing a, a little thing to light. We're talking about price gouging at supermarkets and gas stations and everywhere else it seems like we go to today. Um, I'll start by saying um, I, we don't have – I'm not covering on any sort of medical insurance, whether provincial or private or anything else. <clears throat> Excuse me. March 1st, I went to my uh, local pharmacy and I had a prescription filled. It was a low dose, um, very generic um, cholesterol medication. Okay. At the time, I paid, uh, it was $31 and change. So it was, let's say, about 30 to $32. This past Friday, I went back to my pharmacy, had it refilled on, and it came to $92. Dollars and change. That's almost a two hundred percent increase in three months. At the same pharmacy. At the same pharmacy, and all I was told was, "Well, the pharmaceutical companies, because of COVID and supply demands and transportation costs, they had to put the costs up two hundred percent." Sounds like a pretty thin excuse. It's ridiculous. I mean, we sit back and, you know, the thing is with, you know, I, I hear people talk about, you know, they're, they're people, people are going hungry because they can't afford food. People are going cold. We're making sick people sicker. And the unfortunate part is, is that I don't understand why government hasn't stepped in and said, hold on, wait a minute. I just got a question here. Because if I was covered on a provincial drug plan, I would have gave them a copy of my so-called drug card. And it would have been covered 100% by government, but that added cost is going to the government coffers. What is that added cost every three or four months to the healthcare system? I mean, my prescriptions would have went from, say, 125 a year to almost 400 a year. That is outrageous. So, just so I can, just to clarify, yep. what portion of this money do you think is going to the government? Is that what you're saying? No, okay. no, no, uh, no, 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 no. I'm saying is that it, if if I was uh, if if I was under a provincial drug plan, then the government would be paying my my like my my portion go going to the pharmaceutical companies. I'm, I'm not saying the government is not putting this stuff out. All I'm saying is I'm surprised that government is not coming out and questioning why is pharmaceutical companies being allowed to put these costs up. Is it because pharmaceutical companies are in the back pockets and they're, 
I don't know, contributing to campaigns or whatever. But I mean, no, I'm not just I'm not I'm not saying that any of my money is going to government. I'm saying is that all of a sudden, pharmaceutical companies coming out and to put up one drug, which is a generic drug, and put almost two hundred percent in three months. That is outrageous. It is outrageous, and I would suggest that pharmaceutical companies have had such a massive influential lobbying presence in this country and certainly in the United States forever and a day. And, you know, I read a story the other day about uh, uh, McKinsey & Co., who this government has hired to do some evaluations about economic opportunity, and they were dealing with Purdue and trying to find ways to manipulate the market and craft messaging regarding prescriptions uh, for opioids. So, look, there's some bad, bad players out there, and they've had the run of the place for a long time. So even if you look at the price of diabetes, whether it be uh, testing strips or insulin and the like, we have ourselves a huge problem. For starters, we probably overprescribe a lot of drugs. Certainly in this province, it's been well documented, all the way from antibiotics to other drugs. So... You're right. How government intervenes, I really don't know because, you know, we do want government to help protect us from a gouge. But how that works and how you share the gouge pain across pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical companies or grocery stores or oil companies or whoever because they've got us right where they want us. We're a captive market. They seem to get away with an awful lot. The Competition Bureau of Canada seems to be a pretty fairly useless organization, I'll put it that way. I, I totally agree. I mean, I really don't want the premier or the prime minister setting my grocery prices or my gas prices. Or, but I think there has to be some. I mean, as it relates to pharmacare or uh, dental care, it, it, it seems to be getting out of control. It seems to be so many people are struggling. And you've got a situation, I even know myself, I, I'm kind of looking at, God, well, do I take one pill every second day, which defeats the purpose, or just give them up completely and hope for the best? It's to the point where it's, it's kind of getting out of control, and people are falling through the cracks, especially considering that if I gave up the medication, I had to go in the hospital for six months, well, every day the pharmacist downstairs would put my prescription together and then a nurse or an orderly or whoever would bring up, and your prescriptions are free. So what is causing government for allowing pharmaceutical companies to you know, triple their prices in a three-month time span? That seems a little bit, I don't know, it's a little bit uh, backdoor hand, a slap in the face to a lot of people. Yeah, which I, I think, you know, it's always worthy to take into consideration some of the reports that have been done for the federal government repeatedly. Dr. Eric Hoskins and his report regarding universal pharmacare comes with a whopping big price tag, but he spells it out pretty clearly what the upside is to individuals. There's millions of Canadians not refilling their prescriptions, millions of Canadians who don't have any coverage whatsoever. Also, millions of Canadians who are maybe taking half of their prescription dose. So there's a conversation we had there. It does come with a whopping big price tag, but as I say probably too frequently, the two most expensive things in the country is a night in the prison or a night in the hospital. To try to keep people out of both is probably a pretty good plan. I was just going to use your words against you that way. Yes, I've heard you say a thousand times that, <laughs> you know, to, 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 you know, what is the cost of government to help people before they get to a stage where we have to hospitalize people? Is there a savings there? And if it is, Maybe there is a reason to have an open and legitimate conversation about how do we keep keep people at a hospital before it gets to the point that it's going to cost us double or triple to have a person in the hospital. 
Well, because our system is reactionary as opposed to preventative medicine being the guiding principle. I know it's uh, you know that some of that is our own personal lifestyle choices and our own personal responsibility, but it does include just a different way we approach the healthcare system. If we're simply talking about keeping people out of the hospital, I uh, really appreciate the time this morning, caller. Stay in touch and welcome yeah, as a first timer. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm not a walking billboard for uh, physical fitness. Me neither. But I mean, <laughs> but I mean uh, uh, a 200% increase on one medication, I'm afraid to get my next refill. Lord only knows what's going to happen. Good luck to you. Stay in touch. You too. Thank you very much for your time. You have a wonderful day. Same to you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the whole concept of government subsidies. A lot of it's not new. I mean, government has been subsidizing various industries and sectors of the economy for a long time. We'll talk about that. And then the caller wants to talk about Stats Canada. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air. Oh, yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Uh, yes, I I was wondering if a lot of people are getting, you know, calls from Stats Canada about uh, labor force surveys. They've been they've been on our my case and my wife's case for almost two years. First started out with the wife, she got a letter and and they wanted her to do a survey or participate in a survey. Mm-hmm. And we don't do surveys. Because there's too many scammers and too many sales pitches and too many other people on the line, you'd spend too much time fooling around with them. So anyway, uh, I threw the letter in the garbage. I got another letter. I threw it in the garbage. And then they started calling, and I told them, we don't do surveys, and that's the end of it. And they kept calling. In fact, once last year, uh, I was driving and I got this call on my cell phone and I pulled over and this was a guy from Stats Canada and I was a bit upset with him. I told him give it up. I said I don't want to. I, I don't do surveys and I said I've told you that and I said if I hear from you anymore I'm going to call the minister's office and find out if you got anything better to do than start than, than, than tormenting people. Anyway, it's, that was fine. It kind of slacked off after that. But then uh, a few months ago, it started again. We got letters, household letter, and uh, I, I do the, did the same thing. I threw it in the garbage. I don't do surveys. So that was fine. Then a woman came to the door, and I you know, politely uh, uh, conversed with her. And I told her, you know, I said, no, don't do it. And she said, well, she talked about how important it was and all that. I said, yeah, it might be important to you, but it's not important to me. I don't do surveys. There's too many scammers. And forget it. I said, take me off your list. Well, she said, yeah, you may get more calls. And I said, well, I hope not. Anyway, they keep calling like yesterday i got two calls i don't answer the phone because i i can tell who's who's calling now and this morning now i got another letter saying we we uh you know you don't do it but it's important and we'd like for you to do it and all this stuff well uh, they won't give up they, they don't take no for an answer, and I'm wondering if other people are getting the same. I know my, I got a call once there after I got the, the letter started coming in spring, and I was talking to a, a fellow from Halifax, uh, 
and we had a fairly good conversation. And I explained. I said, "No, don't do it. I don't. I don't do surveys, and I'm not going to do them." And he talked to me again about how important it was and this that. I said, "Yeah." So he he said, "You're, you're not." No, I said, "Look," I said, "My brother," I said, "has been doing what you you guys." I said, "To get get him get you off his back," and I said, "You you keep on his case." So I said, "You you fellows are like the are like the Kellogg's cornflakes, popcorn." I said, "The more you get, the more you want." So I said, "If I agreed to you once, I said you'd be on my case four or five more times, and I got more things to do than go on with that." It's pretty relentless stuff. Uh, I'm not on the receiving end, but I do get some of the polling companies that I guess my number just keeps popping up. It's all automated, so the person who's making the call, that number is given to them. They're not selecting anything. It's just a automatic automated role so how about simply ignoring them and maybe they'll go away well that's what I'm doing but they don't seem to uh, they don't think no for an answer and you know uh, the calls keep uh, yes last night I was on the on the phone with the uh, service company trying to get my internet and stuff working and they called in and inter- you know uh, intercepted my call I didn't answer, but uh, you know it's uh, it's it's harassing to me, and especially when I've told them in no uncertain terms that I don't do it and I don't plan to do it because, like you say, uh, there's too many scammers on the go, and what do they do with the information? Not only that, I told a guy from Halifax. I said, you know, I can tell you anything. I said, I said, politicians call and you can tell them who who you're going to vote for, and they won't vote for them at all. So I don't know how valid these 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 surveys are anyway, you know. But I said I'm not in there. I said forget it, and uh, they keep you know they keep on your case. And I'm wondering if a lot of other people are getting harassed to the same extent. Well, yes, they are. Because while you're talking, floating right in front of me, I can just see out of the corner of my eye, my emails float into the corner of my screen before I open them up in my inbox. People yeah. say, same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me. And I just got a text from a good friend of mine saying, same thing is happening to her. And repeatedly. Yeah. They also went on to confront her at her home, she says. And she was told that she was legally obligated to participate. The only legal obligation I know of regarding Stats Canon and whatnot is the census. You do indeed That's have to right. complete your census, but I didn't think you have to, by law, fill out some survey regarding labor force or anything else under the sun, so that's news to me. Well, this is interesting because on the letter that I got this morning, it says it's a mandatory uh, uh, requirement, okay. uh, you know, and, and they did mention census uh, uh, surveys, which is, you know, uh, we understand that. They they make themselves well known about that. If you don't do it, you'll let you get charged. But uh, in, ter- in terms of, you know, isn't it my choice to say yes or no, I won't do it? I and, thought so. And, 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 but they don't take no for an answer. Boy, I tell you, it's terrible. Yeah. And, I can... You know, it's costing a fortune, sure, for them people to be harassing you, uh, in, a, in, a, in the way I put it anyway. And uh, why don't they just move on and find somebody else if they want to do it? But uh, if I say no, no means no. I get it. And I'm going to follow up with Stats Canada because I, to be honest, was unaware of any legal obligation to anything except for the census. So I'm going to see if I can figure this one out a little further. But apparently, given this uh, six minutes we've been talking, I'm going to say a dozen people have said the exact same thing that you're telling me. I haven't read the emails in full, but it basically says it's happening to me. It's happening to me. So we'll follow up and see if Stats Canada can clarify this 
legal obligation to do a survey. Uh, I don't know why the census is important because that's how government will absolutely have to uh, adhere to actual data to create policy. So I get that. It's in our collective best interest to fill out the census, but a labor force survey, I'm not so sure. That's right, and you can give them what kind of, you know, you don't have to be truthful with them, and if they they tick you off, you can tell them anything. You can say, yes, I'm working all the time, and I could be retired, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, the the, 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 the credibility of the survey is questionable. But anyway, yeah, very good. I just thought I'd raise it as a public issue to see what's going on, and it seems that, uh, by according to your emails, I'm not the only one. Apparently not. It's on the phone and at the door, so we're going to see if Stats Canada can provide us a guest or at least give us some written clarification about exactly why it is the way it is and the whole legal obligation and all the rest of it. I'll, I'll see what I can figure out. Yeah, according to the letter this morning now, they said they were going to send somebody to the door again, you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'll just tell them what I always tell them. I'm not interested. <laughs> Appreciate the time, Ron. Okay. All the best. Bye. Bye bye. All right, uh, Dave, I don't think we've ever had any luck with Stats Canada for an actual on air guest, but let's see if we can get one because there's obviously lots to it. Stats Canada does pretty good, pretty reliable work. But things like this, if people uh, people feel like they're just constantly and relentlessly pes- uh, pestered, then maybe we can get someone to speak to that. All right, uh, all the callers in the queue, stay right there. Government subsidies, the education system, given today is the last full day of school. There's also another call about air travel. We'll see what Keith has to say about that. And then, of course, the ongoing and panicked search for the Titan submersible. Frank wants to talk about that. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we spoke with one one of the candidates for the PC leadership. That was Tony Wakeham some while back. Now joining us on line number two is another one of the candidates. That's Eugene Manning. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. Thank you. How about you? Not too bad. You're talking about the end of school. I, uh, my little fellow has sports day today. He's got him with a winter jacket on. I'm headed to watch him do his races after I finish up with you here. Well, at least he's going to get a chance to have the sports day, cold or otherwise. <laughs> it's a rough day here in the city, yeah. Patty, Colin, this morning about government subsidies. You, you hear all the time about um, subsidy for this and we need to invest. And I get it. There's a requirement for government investment in a number of areas, uh, Patty. But the reality of it is, at the end of the day, government doesn't have money. Government spends your money. It spends my money. And that money isn't free. And at some point, we have to take a real look at how we do things in this province, in this country. And the answer to every problem can't be to throw more money at it. No, uh, that's where I think maybe this is splitting a hair, but there is a distinct difference between investment dollars, equity positions, tax breaks, because generally speaking, the whole nonsense about, you know, trickle-down economics, which we know doesn't make any sense, it has never worked. If you give a corporation a tax break, they'll use that money for their own purposes, either just simply to increase revenue or profits, stock buybacks and the like. But a subsidy is money that we would never have gotten in the first place if there wasn't an opportunity created. I'm not saying it's the only tool in the toolbox for government, but there are some areas where we have seen some return on investment, I'll call it. For instance, the uh, TV and film uh, tax credit here, that has created lots of jobs. Return on those dollars has made sense. I know people don't want to hear that because they think arts is a hobby, but it's made sense. So is there any area where you think tax relief or a tax subsidy makes sense? There is, and you can look at it and speaking to your tax credit, and I think the uh, the film and television tax credit has done great. I did some work for Disney when they were here, and uh, they were a great company to work for, actually. But... So the larger point is that unless it comes in a larger framework of how we address our challenges, look at the $46.2 billion in federal transfers that came into health care. My whole point is that just to, whether it be a tax break or even, once again, you get into semantics, but 
to throw money at every problem. We need a different approach across the board. We talk about air subsidies or however you want to call it or breaks for the big for Air Canada and the big airlines and whatnot. If we chase every other province to the bottom, then the tax break or the tax incentive that the province of Nova Scotia, the province of Newfoundland Labrador provide only gets built into the business model. Patty, look at that $15 billion that our federal government just put into that, that Volkswagen uh, battery plant in Ontario. It was an investment. The government said it would be a return. What happened? Right down the road from there, the Stellantis plant, they stopped construction because they said if Volkswagen's getting the $15 billion, we want it too. No, that, that's where I think some of these things are a little bit more complicated than sometimes the news coverage gives it. For instance, when we talk about air travel and guaranteed revenue and those types of things regarding WestJet, Air Canada, whoever, this is an issue that we can't solely settle as a province because we've got competing factors inside our own confederation, which makes it a little bit more complicated. That Volkswagen issue in Stellantis, that's you know a corporate tug-of-war, and all in direct relationship to an American piece of legislation and trillions of dollars available inside the Inflation Reduction Act, which which is why we've we've taken something that is corporate welfare bad to trying to understand the comp- the competition between provinces and the competition between countries. I think there's there's a lot of meat on that bone. There's and there's a big discussion to have within the federation and within the council of federation. But it's a point of the race to the bottom. The federal transfer was forty six point two billion dollars. I think here in Newfoundland we got a hundred million dollars. We did not address any of the shortages in healthcare. But then what we did start to do is give bonuses and incentives. And if Newfoundland and Labrador is going to try to compete with Ontario and Alberta just by throwing more money at nurses and doctors and other primary care providers, it's not going to be sustainable long term. Me and you have discussed this in the past. The challenge with all this is we need to re to take a complete different look at how we approach this. If we're going to look at money into tourism, I was in Twillingate two weeks ago. Patty, listen, there's no cell service in St. Bride's uh, where I am. I have to Wi-Fi my entire yard in order to get my phone to work because you can't run a business these days without a cell phone. There is no cell phone service in Twillingate. It's the iceberg capital of the world. It is on every postcard that we send out for the province. If we're going to invest in tourism tomorrow, there are other areas instead of giving Air Canada another bailout to, to give a cheaper flight. Yeah. But then, of course, you get government investing in things like infrastructure regarding cell phones and high-speed broadband and what have you. Just look at the last high-speed broadband money that went out the door. Enormous amounts of money to service very few households. Oh, something with Eugene there? Uh, is no. Eugene gone there? I'm here. Okay, I just had a big dial tone ringing through my headset. Uh, oh, so, yeah, all of these issues, I don't think there's a direct overlap between all of the different sectors of the economy and how government approaches them. Because, for instance, you know, for Bell or Telus or Rogers or whoever, the lack of cell phone coverage is because it doesn't satisfy their business model. They don't think they're going to spend on infrastructure because there's very few customers in the big scheme of things. So government tries to play a role. So... In effect, while government might be helping folks on the Buren Peninsula or in Twillingate or out in St. Bride's to get some coverage, in fact, all we're doing is patting the pockets of the big three mobile cell phone companies. So I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I do think the conversations are a little bit different regarding different needs, different sectors of the economy, different return on investment, different competitions between provinces and countries. That's where I think it becomes uh, a, a massive conversation. 
But, Betty, I think it's a, a larger issue. It's simply a race to the bottom on this. If we keep pumping out government money to address any issue, in pri- most issues in private business, like, I think long term, we just put another bond in the field. The provincial government just put another bond in the field last week yes. at 4.15%. It was the first bond they've issued in over five months, which is the largest gap we've had in a number of years, time-wise, which is very interesting. That 4.15% bond, 18 months or, or two years ago, we were picking up bonds at 1.25%. The cost of that money has more than tripled. Yeah. While I get that there has to be government investment, just because we can get access to a loan, if it's in your own house, your own business, just because you can get access to a loan doesn't mean it's a good idea to spend that money. There has to be a strong look at where we are as a province. We have 5 to $6 billion worth of bonds coming due in the next five years if we don't borrow another dollar that we're going to take on. At some point, more money out the door has to be addressed in this province. If not, we can't keep kicking the can down the road on the fiscal situation of where we're going to find money. Investment, yes, but at some point we have to say that it can't. The answer to every question can't be more money. Agreed, hundred percent. How do you think issues regarding population factor into this? Because if we simply leave it up to business to make a business decision based on their profitability, at some point we have a problem. Inside a country that has now cleared 40 million people and still in the neighborhood of 525,000 here, there's not a lot of big business sense to go out of your way to set up shop here, whether it be with air travel routes or a variety of matters, because population, of course, would be market size, consequently impact on profit and required investment to service, whether it be for Air Canada or Bell or Disney or anybody else. So how do you think we factor uh, population into this conversation? I think we, how we bring it in is we, we don't try to compete with everyone on the playing field that exists. We point to our uniqueness, whether it be uh, within, our, within coming back to the whole old debate and, new, and the Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador as the post of the Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador. But we have, there's an opportunity that exists now within the framework of post-COVID, of work from home. We have people to work from all over the world. There are people, I don't think that we are going to attract, we'll come back to nurses and doctors as an easy example. If you want to practice nursing or be a doctor in downtown Toronto, I don't think it's easy to convince them to come and work in Airport Newfoundland. That does not say there are not doctors or nurses or primary care providers who don't want to set up shop. It's almost like a, it's, it's a tourism in, uh, issue in and of itself. We appeal to the people that want to be here and we grow the industries. You cannot tell me that someone wouldn't want to sit on a deck this evening or have access to a hiking trail right behind their house as opposed to being in some downtown urban environment. There are potential here. What we have to do is market to our potential, not market just try to be better than everyone else. We have to be unique and offer a unique perspective yeah which uh, and in all fairness i don't think air canada or westjet or bell or equinor care a whole lot about that because their corporate mandate is really quite simple there's nothing complicated in the world of uh, uh, corporate canada or corporate north america if there's not a profit they don't care about the quality of the east coast trail or anything else under the sun no, fair enough. But we can talk about Equinor for a minute. We can talk about Beta Nord. Coming back to the whole point and coming back to your air travel and to, and to bring it all back to the carbon tax and everything else. We've looked at what the federal government has done by implementing the carbon tax is they were aiming to make air travel more expensive. Air travel became more expensive. They want people to travel less. It is exactly what they were trying to accomplish with that. Now we're trying to subsidize it. And Equinor and Beta Nord, they are only going to come here if they can pump oil. We approved, the federal government says they approved Beta Nord under Bill C-69, Patty. As you know, that came with 139 restrictions. And Bill C-69, coming back for the next mega project in Newfoundland Labrador, the challenge 
challenge with that is Bill C-69 still exists. And in the last federal budget, which is not talked about enough in this province either, the federal government put $1.3 billion additional dollars into the Impact Assessment Agency because they've pointed out that they've gone wrong in that bill and they need to clear the backlog and the red tape that they've created. I don't think the issue is more government subsidy, whether it be $500 million for Terra Nova or anything else. I think the issue is to clear the regulation and the backlog so we can get those companies to make a sound business decision based on where they can make money and put people to work in this province. Well, the federal now, government what, did green light or released the Environmental Assessment for Equinor, they made a business decision. And in fact, in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, there are exactly zero projects being considered as of last month anyway. I haven't looked uh, in the last 30 days or so. Uh, Eugene, uh, very quickly, it's 11 o'clock, so i got to go. But I, you know, we know that Tony Wakeham and Lloyd Pard have talked about support. They're getting inside the caucus and talked about people who are endorsing. Uh, do you have anybody that's currently an elected official uh, inside the PC party or anyone else of note that you'd like to uh, comment on as having endorsed? your candidacy? Well, Patty, we had a big endorsement yesterday from Dr. Paula Cash and Kennedy there in, uh, in Gander, and uh, we were very proud to bring that on board. As you know, this leadership is one member, one vote. Um, yeah. I think that uh, I have a good working relationship with caucus, um, but at the end of the day, we are... We are not. We don't have an elected seat in the House. We are coming in. We're taking things a bit differently, and I think there's a, a level of comfort with where things are for many. And I don't think I share that same comfort. And we're, we're in for change, and we're in for something different. And uh, we're anxious to show people what we have to offer. Appreciate the time, Eugene. Thanks. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. All right, quickly before we go, this is a, an informative email regarding Stats Canada and what you may, what you must, or. I have an option to do. Participation in the census of population and the census of agriculture is mandatory pursuant to the Statistics Act. All Canadian households must complete a census of population questionnaire. All farm operators are required to complete a census of agriculture questionnaire. If Statistics Canada contacts you for a labor force survey, a business survey, or an agricultural survey, you are also obligated to participate participate pursuant to the Statistics Act. For other Stats Canada surveys, participation is voluntary. There you go. Frank, stay right there. You too, Keith. Air travel and this search for the missing submersible. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line three. Keith, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. Thank you. How about yourself? Uh, not bad. My heart goes out to the people down in that little uh, submarine. I, they must be terrified at this this point in the search, and let's hope and pray that they all get home safe. Here, here. Uh, Patty, I'd like to talk to you about air travel. And uh, first of all, I'm going to go back to when COVID hit, and the government said anyone who started, you know, once you fly out, you're gone on your own if we went during COVID right at the beginning. We had our trip at that time cancelled because, you know, because of COVID. And uh, it took us up until a little bit, I'm not sure if it was the last half of last year or the first half of this year before we finally got our money back from Air Canada. Now, we also went out, we were flying down with WestJet, which were still fighting for that money. You know, and that's gone back, what, three years now, two years, whatever it was when COVID struck. So, Keith, were you fighting with the airline or did you bring it to the uh, Canadian Transportation Agency? No, no, we're, we're still in talks with WestJet at, at the present time. Okay. Waiting on trying to get, you know, we had to pay. They told us if we didn't use this uh, voucher over two years uh, or over a year or something, 
uh, they give us one year free. Then the next year we had to pay to keep that voucher, which we did. Right. And now the voucher was up in March of this year, and we said, well, we got to use it. So I was, I just, uh, I don't want to try and get ahead of my story here. But anyway, uh, WestJet's, we're still in talks trying to get the money back. That's what it boils down to, which is a bit ridiculous. And I don't think we should be bailing out or giving them any money and let till we get our stuff. I thought that was one of the things the federal government said. If they bail them out, we, they were supposed to pay us back. But anyway, uh, as regards to that, now going on to the second half of my story, we just went to Portugal in May month. In order to get to Portugal, I had to fly from St. John's to Toronto. And then I had to go from Toronto to Lisbon. Now, I flew right back over Newfoundland, which is ridiculous altogether. And then when we went and done our trip, we went to Spain on the second half of our trip. We flew from Barcelona. We had to go fly over Newfoundland again, go to Toronto, and then Toronto back here. Now, you know, couldn't even get to Halifax, which would have been closer, you know. And I think that the government should be putting some stops that the, that they got to at least make a stop here in the Atlantic provinces somewhere. I mean, that's terrible. You know, I get to pay extra money, basically pay for a flight to Toronto to go on my vacation. Yep. Thank you to Europe anymore. It is infuriating you know. to fly right back over your own house. My house is on the uh, on the flight path while it is for uh, uh, planes landing in St. John's. So I get it. My only worry here is, and I've, I'm a proponent of trying to do what we got to do to increase air access here and direct flights, but the worry for me is clear, or it's simple. If indeed government does what they've been doing in other provinces for you know guaranteed revenue and stuff, it's pretty shaky stuff because... The airlines have proven their track record to be really easily understood. As soon as they get what they want, they leave. So, That's right. you know, I don't know how this works and how you do it without just throwing money away. But my worry would be, okay, they come in, they get a bit of traction, they get a better deal elsewhere, they're gone with their money. Well, and, and another part of that, Patty, is with the WestJet part with me, uh, was we decided, well, we're going to use the credit. That's enough for this, waiting around, waiting around. We'll use our credit. I'll go up to Nova Scotia to see some family members. Westhead said, I'm sorry, we don't fly out of there. But what we will do, you got to fly to Toronto and then fly back to Halifax. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. That don't, that don't even make sense. You know, so the government got to get us some decent travel. And also, talking about travel, I called up to book a, a, a ferry out of Argentia to go to Nova Scotia. That's fine. It's going to cost almost $1,000, I think, return time, we, you know, to get up there and come back on the ferry with a cabin and all this stuff. And I can't get a a, a, a ferry run and the Argentia run with a cabin until mid-September. Mm-hmm. And they finish up the end of September or something like that, you know, thereabouts. So... You know, I don't know, boy. The cost of getting off of this island is getting disgusting. And I don't know how come everywhere else you go over to Prince Edward Island, you can get the ferry over, you only pay one way getting off the island. Well, we should at least have that option here. You know, uh, we live here. 
that's supposed to be our Trans Canada. They charge us enormous amount of dollars for nothing, you know, to get off. And then I got turned around, paid to get back on again, you know. Something got to be done, boy, with all this transportation. And if the government don't step in, boy, we're in trouble. I get why people say, look, we've got bigger concerns, but, you know, that's the same old argument all the time. Like healthcare. Okay, I get it. We spent about $4 billion on healthcare. I think we have to reconsider how we spend money on healthcare, to be honest with you, because if money was the solution, we wouldn't have the problems we have. But air access is an issue. What the right thing is to do, I'm not sure, but people know it's an issue. Even the cost to travel around your own province inside the province is exorbitant. Uh, Keith, I appreciate the time. I'm glad you made time for the program. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and I don't know what the right thing is to do here, but I do know that if the status quo is just going to mean whatever the bleak situation and scenario is for travel air in particular, it's only going to get worse. Let's uh, go to line number one. Frank, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. I guess we're all the talk we want to talk about now. I think you wanted to talk about the uh, submersible rescue yeah. mission. Yeah. Um, what I've uh, been hearing all the time is about the oxygen running out. Uh-huh. Uh, we, uh, I was on one, we done the rescue one almost identical to what's going on now. Okay. And they, uh, when we got them, the oxygen was supposed to be gone 12 hours before we got them, but they were still alive. And when was this and where was this? Off Ireland. Off of Ireland. When was uh, this? 1973. And Frank, you were involved as a member of the Navy or a Coast Guard or who were Coast you working Guard. for? Coast Guard. Okay. Coast Guard. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. We uh, pulled them up from the bottom, and uh, they were okay. Uh, they were expecting to be dead, right? Expecting to open up the hatch, to them popped right out. And so was this like a full-size submarine, or what mini were you? Mini-sub. Pardon? Mini-sub. A mini-sub, okay. Uh, yeah, much like this one now. That's, uh, they were uh, on the bottom doing survey work. For uh, uh, they were laying a cable or something. And one of the uh, compartments filled with water. They couldn't get back up. They were down three days. Hello. Uh, no, I'm just listening to your story. It's incredible. So I wonder was the fact that one of the compartments filled up uh, the ability to stretch out the uh, the amount of oxygen available. I have no earthly idea, but uh, was there any? Did anyone, after the investigation took place, I assume, have any sort of explanation as to how they were able to last for 12 hours beyond the expected uh, oxygen supply? No, I don't think. They were just so happy to get them, right? Wow. They were just so happy that they were all right. You know? Uh, yeah, it was uh, all the stories in England. There's more than what's going on around here now. Such as? I see, you know, the stories that was going on in England uh, was trying to get them right. It was really, really, even the Queen was involved with it. So you were working for the Canadian Coast Guard? Yeah. How did the Canadian Coast Guard become involved in that search uh, off the coast of England? Or we Ireland? were laying cable. John Cavett, she was a cable ship. Oh, okay. So we were over, we were in England, and they tried three ships before, before John Cavett, and they couldn't get her up. They'd get her up so far and, and, and <laughs> lose her again. I don't know how they got out to the Yanks have it. I don't know how they know but we were there. So we were in England, then we had to go to that was a few hours things. Oh, it was a bit going on. 
So how did they get the mini-sub to the surface? Uh, with uh, another mini-sub, Oak Drop. Okay. And we brought it up with the cable of our ship. Hooked up with the cable. Okay. So apparently uh, a piece of equipment called the Flyaway Deep Ocean Salvage System, which belongs to the U.S. Navy, arrived in the city yesterday to go out and be part of, if they can locate it, to be able to pull it out of the water. But that's amazing stuff. How long were you with the Coast Guard, Frank? I was 23 years. 23 years. Yeah. Were you a part, a part of the group that first saw the two uh, blokes emerge from the sub? Uh, I helped all her up. Really? Yeah. We all we are up with our cable gear. Yep. Yeah, that's why we, it was the only ship that had the power to take her up. Did you get her up so far and lose her? It's a great story, and hopefully it'll be uh, offer just an additional glimmer of optimism or hope that there's uh, a... When when we got them up, mm-hmm. they had 15 minutes left of, of oxygen. That's all was left. Great story. Never heard it before. Yeah. As the uh, that's on you could Google that the picture of her and everything's there. Picture of the submarine up where we had her up tied up to the. We had she had to be up 15 minutes before we could open the hatch because uh, they said if you open the hatch you get a big bang. And uh, so they had to uh, wait 15 minutes before they open the hatch and. Yeah, decompress. I suppose there's a yeah, pressure yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. They pop right up. And okay. Great story, Frank. I'm glad you called today, and I appreciate your patience. Yeah, okay. Take care. All right. All right. Bye. That's a pretty good story there. And look, again, I have no idea what's going to be the outcome. People are putting a lot of stock in the fact that there's been those sounds detected. Apparently an internal email has said it's absolutely banging. Uh, they imagine or they think it's caused by humans, this banging, and it's at predictable 30-minute intervals. They haven't been able to locate the source of the banging. But the concept of 96 hours of oxygen, as per a news story that someone sent to me last night, that's never even been tested. They don't know. So the stories regarding the attention to safety or the lack thereof of OceanGate and, you know, the fellow who was responsible for the uh, safety of all the crew and clients who was fired when he tried to blow the whistle on safety issues and how they were testing, real-life testing, a one-third scale model, you know, Predictable tests at 1,300 meters, but still plans to take it down repeatedly to uh, depths of 4,000 meters. So we don't know what went on on that particular submersible, but people are crossing their fingers, and rightfully so. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? All right. Uh, during this break, it's your opportunity to join us in the queue. It'll be a quick wait before you get on the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Well, as one of the listeners via Twitter said, you never know what you're going to hear on the program. So that was a remarkable story just told by Frank and his involvement in the 1973 rescue. So Andrew did indeed send along a little bit more information about this. And it's the rescue of Roger Mallinson and Roger Chapman happened in between the 29th of August, well, the search between the 29th of August and the 1st of September of 1973 after their Vickers Oceanic Small Submersible. The Pisces 3 was trapped on the seabed at a depth of 480 meters. Great story. I'm going to read a bit more about that after the show this morning. Let's go to line number one. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Not too bad, you? Good. That was an interesting story, wasn't it? It really was. I had never heard it before. I have myself. I just, the comment I'd like to make is I, um, 
I know that, you know, that what's happening somewhere out there is those people must be in dread and in terror, just sitting in a in a, a submersible, not knowing if you're going to live or die. I can't even imagine. I'm trying not to think about it, to be honest. I pray every night for him, Paddy. I'm sure everybody on the island is doing the same thing. The the uh, what I want to say is that with so much coverage, uh, not only of the local media but the American media, and that. Uh, there's lots of people on the island, probably not lots, but some who have lost loved ones, uh, you know, in ocean uh, disasters, fishing and other words. Well, of course. You know, and all of this media is going to bring back to them what they went through. And they probably will once again go through the suffering and the pain that they suffered when their loved ones died. And I just want to point out that if there's people out there who are going through that, there's counselors out there to talk to them. Their churches probably would be able to help out. But turn to someone and talk it out. Uh, phone you. <laughs> you do a wonderful job. And I was just praying for them this morning that these people now who are remembering again how their loved ones probably went out fishing and, and never came home. That's something I'd just like to point out. Uh, yeah, well, you know, just this past weekend, there was a marble bench reveal up on Shea Heights on the lookout, you know, about the loss of Billy Humby and the three Walsh boys. So, And I knew Billy. So you're right. Every time these types of stories come up, whether it be the families of the, the Ryans and the Ryans Commander or the Joey Jenkins and Mark Russell, I mean, this just recent past stuff that pops into my That's mind right. immediately. And you know full well this does bring them to their own uniquely sad place where they reflect on their own loss and you know one point I will make to what you said Brian if they are in this submersible terrified at this moment that's the best possible scenario that we can consider because there's all kinds of thoughts that something could have been you know catastrophic where they might already be gone I have no earthly idea but I do think this banging is certainly encouraging now locating the source of the banging is going to be the next step here but I try not to let my mind go down uh, the bleakest path on this one. There's lots of people who are opining that it's, you know, it's a search in vain, but let's hope that it's still a search and a rescue as opposed to recovery at this point because it's just a remarkable story, and I can't imagine. If they are still alive, and I hope they are, you can only imagine the absolute terror, no doubt. I mean, they're only supposed to be in it for 10 hours, and here we are since Sunday morning. Well, Paddy... You know, I believe in God. Okay. And, you know, every, I, I was in the mall the other day, and many people, you know, are talking about it. And the one word I've heard when people are talking about this is prayer. You know, I think we, I, we have to pray. We have to ask for God's mercy and his love and to intervene. Already we are, you know, hearing from these, these sounds, which sounds okay. So I'm very happy. And another point I'd like to make on the last one, thank you to the United States. Uh, they've sent a lot of, of uh, things on there that they can use. They sent their uh, people who are educated in these sea disasters. And the Americans certainly, I think, are giving back to us who we gave to them on the 11th of September. So God bless the Americans. 
And that's all I'd like to say, Paddy, and thank Theo. You've been a great help to people, I'm sure, who've had like disasters, and they're going through it once again. Good morning, Paddy. Appreciate the time, Brian. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. You know, I, I don't know how important this question is, but it did pop into my mind, and I think it popped into uh, David Williams' mind as well, is exactly how and why were the Americans so quick to respond to this need? And I mean, that's not to dismiss their role, and hopefully their their role may, leads to a positive outcome here, because in Canadian waters, is it, you know, a standing relationship between Ocean Gate and the American Coast Guard or the U.S. Navy? Because they certainly reacted very quickly. Was it a matter of the Canadian Coast Guard or the Canadian government asking for the Americans to assist in this particular search? Because it is unusual, isn't it? I mean, how many other times have we had search and rescue missions at sea inside our uh, Canadian waters, inside our 200-mile limit, where I can't remember the Americans responding? So I know that this is not the be-all and end-all, not the most important part of this conversation, but it is interesting that they are here, and they're here in droves. Personnel and that equipment that I already mentioned about the ability to take the vessel out of the water, whatever it's called, the flyaway deep ocean salvage system that belongs to the U.S. Navy. They sent it up. So, and I know they sent it up on Tuesday, and the sub or the submersible, pardon me, has been missing since Sunday. But remarkable stuff. I bet you some people will take the story told to us by Frank and the 1973 rescue off the coast of Ireland as just that another glimmer of hope. I mean, there's just so much going on and so many stories and issues that really become quite overwhelming, including this one. So it's not for me to tell you how to treat yourself mentally, but, you know, hopefully it's a little bit of be kind and find some good to go along with what is a lot of very troubling stories and troubling issues out there, many of which we can talk about after the newscast. So let's take a break for the 11.30 news on the dot. When we come back, still a lot of time to speak with you. The topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Thanks. You? Oh, good. I'm doing good. Thank you. The weather is good, so it's all good, and uh, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, Patty, what I want to talk about uh, what's happening recently in the airline industry, like uh, WestJet now uh, closing down Swoop and now Sunwing uh, Airlines, uh, and my opinion, which is not good because now we got less competition. Uh, flying in the air, and uh, and we got to look at accessibility now, especially for Newfoundland and Labrador. But what I don't understand, back in the 90s, uh, between Canada and the U.S., there was an open skies agreement, which was agreed upon. And at that point in time, over a three-year period, when it was uh, agreed upon to give Canadian carriers total access to the U.S. market. But after the three-year period, it's supposed to go vice versa. American Airlines have total access, and Canadian Airlines have total access to the U.S. market. So what I don't understand, why this is not being enforced. So we got a problem with access now because of the Canadian, Canadian airline industry, and we're having problems now with routes and, and you know closing down stations, whatever the case may be. So why don't we focus on the U.S. carriers trying to come into our market? I don't understand why that's not being implemented because I know they're recently the CEO of the St. John's Airport Authority are looking at New York and Boston, and maybe the provincial government probably look at stepping in in there and doing some assistance. 
But the way I look at that, if the provincial government does it for St. John's Airport Authority, they're going to have to look at doing it for other airports as well. But Well, I mean, it'll all be based on passenger load, I would imagine, is the only well, pragmatic passenger, approach. Pa- yeah, exactly. Passenger load and demand and whatever the case may be, right? But why don't they look at the Open Skies Agreement? That was done in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president and John Cretchen was Prime Minister of Canada. So why don't we look at going to the U.S. carriers, try to fill the void to do, to, you know, to uh, give us better access to uh, better markets? Because here in Canada now, every time we turn the news, this is closed now, that's closed down, closed down. We got less competition, so maybe. Uh, you know, this is what the avenue we're going to have to take a look at. Well, American carriers are here. I don't think that that's the stumbling block. You can get on an American carrier at Pearson, for instance. Um, the, yeah. The country just signed an open skies agreement with the Dominican Republic, as a matter of fact, this year. Uh, so not the same thing, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know if there's any piece of legislation or a treaty that's been signed that means that uh, an American airline, United or American or Delta or whoever, uh, Southwest Airlines, can't have a starting point route out of Canada? I don't even know the moving parts there. I haven't really thought about it, to be honest with you. But certainly you can get on an American carrier here. Well, well, under the Open Skies Agreement, they're supposed to be able to and that's going back to the 90s when all this was done and went vice versa for Canadian airlines and so forth. So maybe this is what we should be exploring, uh, look outside the box and, and take a look at this avenue, because if not, we're in serious trouble because the federal government is allowing one airline to buy up another airline, and now they're closing it down, which we just witnessed there recently. And uh, so the system is failing us. So I think we got to look at this Open Skies Agreement the North American one, Canada and the U.S., and look at why can't they have a starting point here because the more competition, more accessibility, the better it is not only for Newfoundland and Labrador but the whole country in general. And I think that's what we got to start taking a look at. Maybe the CEOs up the airport authority should explore it more. Uh, Transport Canada, they should be looking into this more because everything else is failing so we, we we're we're into a crisis and we got to start doing something if not we're going down a slippery slope i'll have to read about the agreement and what it actually entails and what it allows or what it yep. speaks to because i don't know i've read about the dominican republic uh, and canadian government uh, treaty that they signed the certain same thing i guess open skies but i'll have to right. b- uh, look it up and read to see what exactly it allows or what its uh, end goal would be because i don't know but i will read yeah. it uh, yeah, and then this go and that was done in the I can't remember in the nineties, mid nineties or something. But Bill Clinton and John Cretchen were in power at the time, so that'll help you do your research a bit more. And uh, just read the gist of it, and uh, when you do, just uh, bring it up, bring it to your uh, open line, and uh, you know, and we'll take it from there. Okay, I appreciate this, Daryl. All right, again, thank you for your time, Patty. Keep up the great work as usual. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. All the best. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so uh, questions about the American involvement in this search mission. And yes, of course, the Titanic is in international waters. You're, you're absolutely right. Still, I still have a question as to how quickly and to what level the Americans were so quick to get involved here. You know, someone via email said, I wonder would we have the same or similar reaction if there wasn't billionaires aboard. I don't know what the the motivation might be on that front. But here's something sent along by Andrew. Okay. 
And it mentions photos taken by Robert Ballard during an expedition led by the NOAA group in 2004. I actually interviewed Robert Ballard, the fellow who discovered the wreck of the Titanic. He also discovered the wreck of the Bismarck, PT-109, a famous explorer. Uh, anyway, Robert Ballard, compelling man. Uh, compelling. It says, uh, shows a boot and a coat close to the Titanic stern, which experts call compelling evidence that this is the spot where somebody came to rest and the human remains could be buried in the sediment beneath them. The wreck of the Titanic falls under the scope of the 2000 one UNESCO convention on the protection of the underwater cultural heritage. That means all state parties to the convention will prohibit the pillaging, commercial exploitation, sale and dispersal of the wreck and all its artifacts. So because the location of the wreck is in international waters, there is a lack of exclusive jurisdiction over the wreckage area. Fair ball. Appreciate that, Andrew. I still will wonder aloud uh, exactly how the Americans got involved. You know, it's not a bad thing. All hands on deck. This is a critical situation, but that's good information there. Just in a very quick Google about the Treaty on Open Skies, there's all kinds of links there that are easily accessible here. So the basics of it say that the Open Skies type agreement allows any number of carriers to operate both direct and indirect services between Canada and another country, which includes the agreement we signed with the United States. But it also goes on to say, and this is from the American State Department, it says, Open Skies agreements do this by eliminating government interference in the commercial decisions of air carriers about routes, capacity, pricing, etc. So I'll dig into that a little further because that, that might be an option that is worth perusing anyway. Let's go to line number one. John, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Good morning. Excellent. How you doing? Oh, not bad. I'm calling in uh, in regards to uh, the buyers and the processors in the fishing industry. Uh, having the vessels on trip limits and uh, scheduling. Yep. Uh, there's a major sa uh, safety issue there, and uh, I don't know where it's going to end or what's going to happen, but uh, it's not a good thing to have uh, small inshore boats being told from someone behind the desk when, when they can go fishing or not. Yeah, um, okay. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, trip limits have always been a problem no doubt about it i think they're probably an even bigger problem now given the compressed nature of the snow crab season this go around because six weeks of tie-up has probably made it a bit more tricky for the processor to be able to deal with as much crab on a daily basis as they possibly can as opposed to being able to spread it out over an additional six weeks so i guess that's part of it uh, I don't know. I probably uh, beg to differ on that because What's this that? was brought in with, with COVID and uh, and we could understand then and we sort of agreed to go ahead and, and work through it together as, as harvesters and processors as their plant was at half capacity. But uh, COVID is uh, over with now and, and everything should be back to, to normal. And uh, while all that was going ahead, they were trucking in like 10 million pounds of crab from other provinces and stuff. And uh, this year, there's none of that being trucked in, so I don't know. Uh, it seems like there's two or three the major processors and cartel are after buying up what plants are around and close them down or burn them down with blocks on them. And they just don't got uh, enough uh, capacity to handle what crab and stock is coming in. Are there fewer crab processing plants now? Because I know there's 22 of them. Uh, I don't think there's a, there's there was one uh, extra one actually like the, up, up in the St Mary's there I guess that's right. So um, I don't know I can't see the reasoning behind uh, why, why they can't handle the product and that's for uh, the provincial government to step in I guess because it's a big hit to the economy of Newfoundland also like if they should uh, issue more processing licenses to the people that are looking for them here in the province. Or either that let in outside borders, there got to be a solution to this. Uh, and like I said, having someone 
sitting behind the desk telling you you can go Monday and Tuesday and and the weather mightn't be fit and you have people going out in their boats and beating windows out of them. You have people going out getting fired across the deck and getting hurt and unfortunate enough we even have tragedies people left for losing their lives because of it. For sure. So do the inshore crowd think they're going to be able to during the season before it goes sideways to be able to land uh, the entirety of the total allowable catch? Uh, we have no idea because obviously uh, they can do what they like. They don't have to answer to no one, so they let us shut this down any any day at all, which I doubt they will because they're getting a good price for the product now and they'll make a fortune out of it later on because uh, the government funds for freezers for them to hold the product till the price of the market goes up again. So uh, I'd say we're on a hard road here from here on in if we don't have any competition. Like I asked uh, right there, off, right off the bat, that should be a, a conflict of interest. As far as I'm concerned, you got two or three of the major buyers all, all together in a group, and then you got the other little smaller plants there that are uh, under under them, and he feeds them product to keep them quiet. But you got them then working together saying, okay, we're going to pay this much money for the products, and there's no competition in that far as I'm concerned. It's an interesting concept, the outside buyer. Uh, I've asked this question before, and I'll give it a shot with you this morning, John. Is if they were paying 225 on the mainland when the price was set here at 220, why do you think that there would be outside buyers willing to come in and pay any much more than the 220 that was on the table now up to 225? Uh, well, it's possible that they wouldn't pay more, but it's, it's nice to have the competition there to see if 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 they would or not. But like I said. When we first started, like back 10 or 12 years or further back, we were getting 48, 40, like between 35 and 42 percent of the market share. And this year, when the price went down to nothing, uh, we took the hits. We're down to like 25 or 28 or something. Yeah, that's 30, right. Somewhere around there. So why can't, uh, like, why can't there some kind of be some kind of a formula in place that when this happens, everyone takes the, the brunt of the price part? But I'm more leaning on the safety issue here of. Uh, someone sitting behind the desk telling people when to go and when not to go. I think the same thing could be applied to the food fishery or the recreational food fishery, to be honest with you, because it's a pretty compressed time frame. Food's expensive. I think you're going to see a lot of people on the water this year trying to get a few cod for the freezer. But fair point on safety. And I think also an excellent point on the percentage of the market price afforded to either side, because that's got to be part of the new price setting, doesn't it? Because if, if that was a bit more consistent, then it would take away some of the frustration that either side might feel, because you know what you're going to get out of whether be 715 a pound or 220 a pound because it does feel like the harvesters took the majority of the hit with a softened market yes they did yeah and uh, not only that they cut out like we had uh, 80% uh, for premium so you had a tolerance of 20% or then you get paid full price so they, they, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying by it does, saying yeah. that yeah so if anything under 80% that was under 4 inch crab you get paid a um, dollar, well, dollar ninety this year. So now there's zero tolerance. So he wants us to do a, uh, a stock pick of the, of the stock, really. So he wants us to take all four inch in order to get top dollar for, which is which is bad on the stock too. Um, also with the trip limits, like you got people that are telling you to take, say if you have one license, they tell you to take three thousand. They even went to as high as going to the offloading facilities and telling them. If he brings in any more than three thousand, don't take it. And so you got people that are bringing in crab and leaving it in their boat and going out and dumping it later or bringing it home. And so you're taking more crab from the ground. It's like in DFO, they're like these are 
there's nothing in in the under 40 fleet saying that in this in DFO conditions this is all done by the processors and I don't understand why any both sides of the government either side is not stepping up and saying ho ho wait a second here we got to fix this I don't know what the issue is well, the government has committed to trying to put some fix in here now or some solution in. I don't really know how it's going to work because I get the harvester's point about competition will uh, inevitably lead to somewhat higher prices. Who knows how much higher it would be. But there's also somewhere in the neighborhood of five, seven, or 8,000 people who work in the processing sector. So we can't decimate one in favor of the other. But the process doesn't work. The price setting panel has said it themselves this year. 220 is not the right price. But they're handcuffed. It's either pick one price or the other, which they did, and uh, consequently they said it's not the right price. So if that's the price setting panel saying it, then we've got to take them at their word and do something different. Yeah. Like I said about that too, this ash thing, like that, there's no competition there in Newfoundland fishery whatsoever. you got two or three uh, uh, processors and buyers uh, and vendor cartel running the whole show. Like you got them on these committees and uh, don't look after the inshore now. I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say, John? Uh, no, that's it for now. I'm sure there's more stuff that I don't can't think of now off the top of my head, but <laughs> I'll, I'll work on that later on down the road with with other people, hopefully, and they will get fix something. You're always welcome. Okay, thanks, Patty, for your time. All the best. Same to you. Take care. All right, bye bye. Yeah, uh, I think the biggest problem, if there's such a thing, inside the world of the fishery and setting the prices and all that stuff is that it's really hard to understand how just about the same issues with the same tone, the same tenor, rear their head every single year. There's been some moves and some things that have changed to make things better. You know, something that comes to mind, for instance, is the last and first out, the LIFO policy. That went away after coming out of nowhere in the first place. So a couple of small changes and some amendments of the Fisheries Act have maybe improved certain facets of the fishery, but very similar issues pop up every single year. And nobody seems to either A, have the firm understanding of how to make it better, B, an actual plan to execute it, and see what that's going to look like and who it's going to impact, whether it be harvesters inshore, offshore, processors, the trucking companies, those who supply the businesses. So anyway, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Dan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thank you, sir. How about you? I can't complain. My heart goes out to the guys, and that's merciful. Uh... Back in 1983, the drill ship Pelham was out drilling off Labrador in about 1,100 feet of water. They had on board a, a, a mob bill, man on board, one atmosphere bell, take two people, a pilot and a passenger. Uh, Patrick Hander was running the drill ship, and I was on the diving support vessel Balder Cabot. We had two mini-subs uh, called Mantis submersible. They're one-man submersibles. And I was trained over in the U.K. on them, and plus a lot of other Newfoundlanders. Anyway, the mob bell went to the bottom about 1,100 feet of water. We were four hours south of where the bell went down. And at the same time, the Ocean Ranger uh, first investigation was ongoing. So their, uh, their uh, complete uh, program was shut down until they knew that we were on site ready to recover the bell. Anyway, it was a successful recovery. We brought it to the surface. The two pilots got out. One was a hydrospace marine service employee. And the second guy was a company man who went for a ride with, uh, who worked for Petro Canada. Incredible. Two great stories on this front this morning. So how exactly was the submersible rescued? 
Well, the, it was a tethered submersible. Oh, okay. And we took a uh, the tether broke on the the tether broke on the bell, which was on the drill ship colorant. Uh, our submersible took a cable from our ship to the bottom and hooked into the recovery strap on the uh, bell. The bell was about three meters in diameter, weighed about I'd say anywhere from three to four thousand kilos, and it's big enough for two men to swing a dead cat inside. Good visual. So that was a little, little part. I, I spent about 800 hours in a, the one atmosphere submersible, the Mantis, in Labrador Sea, Nova Scotia, Norway, uh, various other places. And it went from uh, being a manned system when they want when the oil companies wanted to get the man out of the water and they converted it into an ROV. And then I went on to ROVs. Who are you working with in the uh, remote operator vehicle world? I work with... Uh, most any company to shut down. Oceaneering International, Hydrospace Marine Services, ProDive Marine Services, uh, Subtech UAE in the Middle East. Uh, oh, it just goes uh, Taylor Diving Salvage. Goes on and on. Wherever there was a job, I went. There was at one point. There's a group of twenty of us Canadians from Vancouver to St. John's. If there was a job call out, we'd all go get, go together on one job. Incredible stuff, you know, obviously a very good career and the opportunity to travel the world doing what you do for a living it must be pretty gratifying. It was at the time, yes, at the time I look back at it and what I'd done and uh, how many lives I've, <laughs> I'd say I, I've saved. Uh, those, uh, those were the uh, infancy of all this one-man stuff and uh, it was a gym suit was another one-man submersible and they recovered one on the drill ship. I forget the name now, but as it was coming, breaking through the surface, they tore the arm off the gym suit. Gym suit flooded, but the person inside survived. He was on the surface. The gym suit was one one atmosphere. The wasp was one atmosphere. Wasp and the mantis was made by Ocell Industries in the UK. And a matter of fact, the owner of Ocell, um, I'm sorry, the people who owned the mantis, HMB Subworks, the, uh, the rescue mentioned by the Canadian Coast Guard, Peter Merzervi was one of the pilots in that sub that was rescued by off Ireland. And he was the managing director of HMB Silberts. And I've met him. Small world. Small world and Newfoundlanders end up everywhere. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Dan, I'm really glad you called today. Thanks for this. Fascinating stuff. Not, not, not a problem. Beautiful weather on the West Coast. Lucky you. <laughs> take care. I hope it's four weeks, but take care. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, good stuff, man. Uh, all right. Um, good show today. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.